Last night we said a great many things. You said I was to do the thinking for both of us. Well, I've done a lot of it since then. It all adds up to one thing. You're getting on that plane with Victor where you belong. But Richard, no, I'm... Now, I'm... you've got to listen to me. Do you have any idea what you'd have to look forward to if you stayed here? Nine chances out of ten, we'd both wind up at a concentration camp. Isn't that true, Louis? I'm afraid, Major Strasser, I would insist. You're saying this only to make me go. I'm saying it because it's true. Inside of us, we both know you belong with Victor. You're part of his work, the thing that keeps him going. If that plane leaves the ground and you're not with him, you'll regret it. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but soon and for the rest of your life. But what about us? We'll always have Paris. We didn't have, we, we lost it until you came to Casablanca. We got it back last night. When I said I would never leave you. And you never will. But I've got a job to do, too. Where I'm going, you can't follow. What I've got to do, you can't be any part of. I'm no good at being noble, but it doesn't take much to see that the problems of three little people don't amount to a hill of beans in this crazy world. Someday you'll understand that. Now, now. He's looking at you, kid. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to Martian Media Montage, episode 84. I'm going to be talking Casablanca, Boogeyman 2023, Surviving the Game, Brain Damage, Kentucky Fried Movie, Honey, I Blew Up the Kid, Pokemon Snap Kiosk, and I'm going to be talking about what games I'm playing as well as a Heath Bar and a Score Bar. Yeah. Had a lot to say. I like to speak fast. It's a lot of fun. Uh, six films, uh, Pokemon Snap Kiosk, because I don't think it gets enough love. I decided to dig into it, do a little bit of history and a little bit of nostalgia to talk about it. And uh, score and Heath bars, they always remind me of my dad. And I just felt like talking about some English toffee. It just sounded really good, man. Some uh, chocolate, some toffee. I wanted to look up the history on it. There's a lot more history on Heath compared to a score bar. Granted, you'll find out in this episode that they both actually ended up working for the same company, Hershey. Score being first in uh, 1981 and then uh, Heath being picked up by Hershey in 1996 years later. Uh, Heath has a pretty uh, interesting uh, history there. But uh, yeah, these six films are great. Casablanca was phenomenal. Boogeyman was okay. Surviving the Game was awesome. Kentucky Fried Movie is awesome. I fucking love that movie. It's so funny. Uh, Brain Damage is great. Uh, uh, excuse me. And then Honey, I Blew Up the Kid is also great. So, uh, yeah, I've been playing Crash Bandicoot 3. Uh, warped, my original PlayStation 1 copy, the uh, black disc. You know, when you flip it over, you see the bottom. It's not blue, and it's not with that gray, shiny aspect. It's black because that's just how the original PS1 discs were. Um, plugged in my PS2, uh, my CRT, got it working. I'm on video one. It's, it's great. I love it. It's a lot of fun. They definitely changed the game compared to the first two. There's a lot more uh, driving levels. Uh, you have to collect the crystals. It reminds me a lot of uh, the Wrath of Cortex on the original Xbox, which I think that game took elements probably from this game. Although having, I played uh, Wrath of Cortex first about a year ago or so. I'm almost done with it. I, I brought it out. So with intentions of, uh, hopefully beating it, I'm pretty far on that one. And, uh, Crash Bandicoot 3, I'm also pretty far into, uh, you get to use, uh, what is it? Crash's sister and she rides a tiger. It's like super cute. And it's a lot of fun. You know, there's the running towards the screen levels, the running away from the screen levels. Uh, Crash gets to ride basically like a Har Harley and he races against like other, uh, you know, racers to collect, uh, the boxes as well as, uh, avoid holes in the ground and the crystals to progress the game. And there's boss battles. It's mostly, I'm sure you guys already know Crash Bandicoot. It's the platforming is what happens to be difficult. Boss battles aren't really all that difficult. I've already died maybe, I don't know, probably five times throughout the entirety of the game. And I'm already on like level 30 or something. But uh, it's a lot of fun. So there you have it. Episode 84, six films, Pokemon Kiosk, two chocolate bars, and uh, Crash Bandicoot 3 is honestly what I've been playing. I, I brought my uh, 
I busted out my Switch to, with intentions of playing more of uh, Sparks of Hope, but I was like, I want to play some Crash. So <laughs> there you have uh, episode uh, 84. Uh, let's get to it. Let's go. Oh boy, what's going on guys? Welcome back. I'm going to be talking Casablanca, the iconic, eponymous, uh, prophetic, <laughs> uh, epitome of one of those classic, classic films. And I just watched it for the first time on my uh, CRT with my VHS tape uh, that I picked up, I think, at a thrift store. And apparently there was like a 20-minute, 30-minute documentary that uh, his wife, Lauren Bacall, did after the fact called, uh, you know, here's to looking at you, kid which is an iconic statement that he says in this film. That's where it comes from. Or uh, like Elsa, don't get on that plane. <clears throat> he says, um, here's to looking at you, kid. I think he says it three times, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, it's Humphrey Bogart, Inger Bergman, and uh, Paul Henreid. Uh, Peter Laurie's in this as well. Um, it, it has an eight and a half out of, you know, over half of a million reviews on IMDb. 1942, PG, uh, hour 42. I mean, what hasn't already been said that, you know, perhaps some of my, my younger crowd needs to know. I mean, otherwise, I'm sure the older crowd, I mean, i.e. my age. I mean, then again, I'm only in my 30s, but I don't know too many people that really watch a lot of old black and white films. And I do here and there, and I probably should watch more. But, you know, this is a great drama romance war film about a cynical expatriate American cafe owner struggling to decide whether or not to help his former lover and her fugitive husband escape the Nazis in French Morocco. Uh, his former lover, obviously being uh, Elsa, aka Ingrid Bergman's character, and her fugitive husband, who's uh, it's a French uh, individual. I can't remember what, who does he play. I can't remember. It's like Mr. Lasso or something. Laszlo, Laszlo, Victor Laszlo. That's who he's play, uh, Paul Henry plays him. Claude Rains is in this as Captain Louis Renault. Uh, dude, there's a star-studded cast here who I've seen in countless other films: uh, Sidney Greenstreet, Sig- Signor Ferrari. Uh, S.Z. Sekal, a.k.a. plays Carl, the uh, German guy. He's in a lot of uh, classic stuff. And Peter Lorre, you would recognize him as soon as you saw him. Dooley Wilson plays Sam, who's on the piano. Uh, I believe Naked Gun 2 and a Half, The Smell of Fear, basically uh, does a parody on it. Where You know, play our song, Sam. You know, of course, ding dong, the witch is dead. Yeah, it's it, obviously he doesn't play that <laughs> song in this film. It's a little more serious, but I'm pretty sure that's what they're making reference to and now having seen this and obviously seen that film a million times i mean i I get the reference let me get a sip of water Uh, okay directed by michael curtis let's see what else this uh, gentleman did he might have done other stuff that i probably have known or watched uh mildred pierce yes i have seen that captain blood haven't seen that in the adventures of robin hood with errol flynn i have seen that in 1938 it's a great film mildred pierce uh 1945 another uh fantastic film so okay he's clearly well known as far as making phenomenal films and it shows because this film was it was great i can see why it's one of those like you have to watch classics i really enjoyed it uh written by julius epstein philip epstein and howard coke cock i'm not quite sure how to pronounce it k-o-c-h i'm gonna say coke that way it doesn't sound like i'm saying cock on the air but too late already said it all right moving on <laughs> the story of Rick Blaine, a.k.a. Humphrey Bogart, a cynical, world-weary expatriate who runs a nightclub in Casablanca, Morocco during the early stages of World War II. Despite the pressure he constantly receives from the local authorities, Rick's cafe has become kind of a haven for refugees seeking to obtain illicit letters that will help them escape to America. That's essentially a plot point. I don't really want to give it away for those of you who haven't seen it. It's That, that makes a lot of sense having read that now because obviously I just finished the film. But when Ilsa or Elsa, I think he, her name is probably Ilsa, but it sounds like, you know, Humphrey Bogart's, uh, his like rugged voice sounds like he says Elsa, but you know, and they even pay homage in a, I believe it's one of the first two Ninja Turtle films. He's like, Elsa, you're not going to get on that plane. I think Mikey's in like a trench coat 
And obviously having seen that a million times, now I know where that reference comes from. Uh, and obviously for those of you that my European listeners, it's uh, what Teenage Mutant Hero Turtles over there, over here in the States is Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. But you know, moving on. When Elsa, I'm going to call her, a former lover of Rick's and her husband show up to the cafe one day, Rick faces a tough challenge that will bring up unforeseen complications, heartbreak, and ultimately an excruciating decision to make. And I think he makes the right one in the end. And, you know, even at the end, when he walks away with, uh, it's like the French detective, I believe. He's like, you know, this is to, uh, I think this is the start of a beginning beautiful friendship or something like some. Yeah, he says a really iconic line, too, that I think is used in later films as well. The tagline here is, uh, where love cuts as deep as a dagger. Uh, yeah, it, it plays off like a noir type film. So, I mean, yeah, sure. I guess why not? You know, rated PG for mild violence. And there's very little, I mean, obviously it's 1942, so there's no blood or anything. Uh, if you guys can hear in the background, I'm listening to, and I'm also watching, uh, Honey, I Blew Up the Kid. Seen it a million times. It is my VHS copy. How I know, because it has my last name plastered on the cover of it. And this copy actually works, the sequel, compared to the uh, predecessor, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, which obviously I replaced. And I do have Honey, I Shrunk we, uh, Ourselves, the uh, third installment in the Clamshell case, which I will gladly uh, be watching after I'm done watching this film. Uh, trivially, let's take a look here. For Casablanca, that is. Not Honey, I Blew Up the Kid. I will get to that probably after uh, I talk about all these films that I'm going to be talking to you guys about here, though. Uh, many of the actors who played the Nazis were, in fact, German Jews who had escaped from Nazi Germany. Jeez, uh, wow. Define irony. Holy crap. Uh, Rick's Cafe was only, or excuse me, one of the few original sets built for the film. The rest were all recycled from other Warner Brothers pictures and productions due to wartime restrictions on building supplies. Hence the plot, you know, it being uh, during World War II, obviously filmed in 1942. And what was going on at that time? What did I just say? World War Mother Truckin' Two. Okay. Oh, boy. Because the film was made during World War II, excuse me for beating a dead horse, the production was not allowed to film at an airport after dark for security reasons. Instead, it used a soundstage with small cardboard cutout airplane and forced uh, perspective. That's pretty cool. To give the illusion that the plane was full size, they used little people to portray the Wow. Portray the crew preparing the plane for takeoff. That's... Wow. Well... Different times, I guess. Years later, the same technique was used in Alien 1979 and in the scene where the Crean... Where the crew discovers, what the fuck, can't speak English. Where the crew discovers, there's your first one, discovers the dead space jockey uh, with director Ridley Scott's son and some of the uh, friends in scaled down spacesuits. That's a trip. Uh, obviously, Rick Moranis, I'm, I'm like looking at the TV again. <laughs> Rick Moranis uh, playing uh, Mr. Selinsky, Wayne, and then obviously the same woman who played his wife is also in the sequel. And it's weird. She doesn't look like she aged at all. Doesn't look like Rick aged at all as well. But I think it's only a matter of like three years, but she still, the mom still looks like a babe. All right, back to Casablanca. <laughs> Rick never plays, or excuse me, Rick never says, play it again, Sam. He says, you played it for her, you can play it for me. If she can stand it, I can play it. Oh, okay. The incorrect line has become the basis for spoofs in movies such as Night in Casablanca, 46, and Play It Again, Sam, in 1972. Interesting. All right, what else we got here? I got a lot on Wiki, but I'm still looking at uh, IMDb here. There's a lot of information on this film that, you know. Released January 23rd, 1943, but filmed in 42. Uh, language is spoken English, French, German, and Italian, so therefore it was uh, released elsewhere. It is also known as Everybody Comes to Rick's. That is a terrible title. Obviously, Rick being Humphrey Bogart's character in the film, an expatriate, I still think Casablanca sounds better because that is the name of the location where they actually are in the film. Filmed at Waterman Drive, Van Nuys, LA, California. Of course, it was uh, produced by Warner Brothers Box Office. Let's take a look here. Wow, even at the time, budget $950K, $950,000. Grossed worldwide, $4 million. So even at the time... I don't know what inflation is due to that, but I mean, you know what? Here, let's let's take a look. I'm gonna take a look. Uh, 
inflation calculator. Here we go. Okay. What do we got here? Or you know what? Hang on a second. Let's see. 1942, because that's when it was filmed, right? So $950,000. Let's see what... Okay, so $950,000. Value of 1942. Price. Uh, equals two. So it had an original... Its budget now was $18.2 million. Now, let's see what it grossed. I think I said $4.6 million. Just to be uh, round. $4.6 million. Uh, inflation calculator. Come on. Come on. How about... Well, 19 million was... Whoa, whoa, whoa hang on. No, hang on. So, 4 million. No way. It looks like it says it's 19.4 billion. So, wow. Okay. That's insane. It, it grossed a lot. All right. Uh, enough said about that. All right. That's insane. Okay. <laughs> wow. <laughs> okay. Holy crap, I'm like sweating just reading about that. Here's a look at it, you kid. Redirects, uh, obviously, over to um, Wikipedia here. Casablanca, 1942, American rom drum, directed by Michael Curtis, who I also stated did other films that are very well known. Uh, filmed, uh, what was it? Uh, Mildred Pierce is what he did. I love that film. Film is set during World War II. Focusing on an American expatriate, obviously Humphrey Bogart's character. Okay, let's move on. Warner Brothers, uh, Irene Diamond convinced producer Hal Wallace to purchase the film rights to the play in January 1942, which makes sense because it plays very much out like a play. Not trying to sound like a broken record here, but very much so. But then again, that's what they had at the time. They had to make things believable. They had to have that character development. They had things very limited, like with the sets, the actors, the timing, everything. And it, it works though. It literally is like watching a play. It's beautiful. And you know, they just don't make stuff like that anymore. But you know, it's a sign of the times, I guess. Um, despite studio resistance, uh, Frank Capra's Why We Fight series early in uh, 1942, brothers Julius and Philip Epstein were assigned to the script. Principal photography began May 25th, 1942, ending on August 3rd of the same year, 1942, shot entirely at Warner Brothers Studios in L.A. I'm not surprised. Oh, boy. Um, Casablanca was rushed into release to take advantage of the publicity from the Allied invasion of North Africa a few weeks earlier. Wow, that's crazy. It had its world premiere on November 26th, near my birthday, 1942, in New York City, and was released nationally in the States January 23rd, the following year, 1943. It was um, a solid, if unspectacular, success in its initial run, exceeding expectations to win Academy Award for Best Picture, while Curtis was selected as Best Director, and the Epsteins and Coke were honored for Best Adapted Screenplay. Its pervasive theme songs have become iconic, and it consistently ranks near the top list of greatest films in history, and rightly so. I, I can get on board with all this. I'm just reading it because I'm curious, you know, and I would like to convey what I can find out to you guys that isn't already known. In 89, the U.S. Library of Congress selected the film as one of the first for preservation in the National Film Registry for being culturally, historically, and aesthetically significant. I, yeah, I can get on board with that. Okay, Wiki says here, 878000 to a million dollar budget, box office 3.7 to 6.9. So it sounds like what I had is in the middle initially on IMDb and Wikipedia. Wikipedia, they always differ. It's like, what's the, whatever. So I always meet in the fucking middle anyway. I don't want to get you guys into the plot because I don't really want to give anything away for those of you who haven't seen it. I want to give uh, other aspects behind the film. 
based on a Murray and Burnett, Joan Allison's unproduced play, Everybody Comes to Rick's, hence the other alternative title, Everybody Comes to Rick's. Personally, I still like Casablanca better. Although I wonder if Everybody Comes to Rick's here in the States was the original title and Casablanca was elsewhere. I wonder if it would be still considered as iconic. I, I don't know. It shares many narrative and thematic similarities with Algiers, the film, 1938, which itself is a remake for the acclaimed 37 film Pepe Le Moco, directed and co-written by Julien Duvivier. The original play was inspired by a trip to Europe made by Marie Burnett and his wife in 38, which they visited Vienna shortly after and were affected by the anti-Semitism that they saw there. In the south of France, they went to a nightclub, had a multinational clientele, among them many exiles and refugees, and the prototype of Sam's character. The first writers assigned to the script were twins, Julius and uh, Philip Epstein, which I already mentioned before. Uh, the Epstein brothers and Coke never worked in the same room at the same time during the writing of the script. And the final budget for the film, the uh, Epsteins were actually given $30,000, so they probably split it. Uh, as of 2021, the equivalent of 398000 borderline 400 k and Coke earned 400, excuse me, 4200 the equivalent of 55000 as of 2021. That's crazy. In the play... Uh, Ilsa, Elsa is what it sounds like Humphrey Bogart says. Uh, the character is an American named Lois Meredith. She does not meet Laszlo until after her relationship with Rick in Paris has ended. And they don't necessarily show that part. It's more or less implied the uh, Paris aspect. Rick is a lawyer and the play set entirely in the cafe ends with Rick sending Lois and Laszlo to the airport. True. To make Rick's motivation more believable, uh, Wallace and Curtis, the director and the screenwriters, decided to set the film before the attack on Pearl Harbor. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I can get on board with that. Oh, boy. Curtis seems to have favored the romantic parts, insisting on retaining the Paris flashbacks. Uh, however, that clearly doesn't happen in the film. I mean, that's, I guess, your spoiler there, right? Bogart's line, here's looking at you, kid, said four times. Okay, I was close. I counted three. Excuse me. Was not in the draft for the screenplay, but he has been attributed to comment he made to Bergman as she played poker with her English coach and hairdresser between takes. So, therefore... Something that wasn't even scripted, he uses, and it's just one of those iconic lines. You hear it, and I, I, you know, I'm, <laughs> I look at him, and I'm like, oh, that's very like just sensual and you know seductive, and it works. Like he, he nails it, and it's an improvisational line, and he said it when they were offset, and therefore he decided to use it in the film. It works though. Let me get a sip of water. Despite many writers, the film has what Ebert describes as a wonderfully unified and consistent script. Therefore, he is correct in that regard. It's it's one of those. It, right place at the right time the fact that it's written the way that it is uh i i couldn't look away like i couldn't i didn't even want to stop it i stopped it i think like once or twice probably to i don't know go to bed or you know take a piss or something but anyway it's just uh, ebert still has this to say coke later claimed that it was the tension between his own approach and curtis's that had accounted for this uh consistent i guess look if you will surprisingly these disparate approaches somehow meshed and perhaps it was partly this tug of war between curtis and me that gave the film a certain balance fair enough julius epstein later noted that the screenplay contained more corn than in the states of kansas and iowa combined that's funny but when corn works there's nothing better jeez all right Oh boy. Uh, extensive changes were made with several lines of dialogue removed or altered, i.e. what I had to say about uh, Bogart's line, here's to looking at you kid, but even then that's whatever, not even really much of a change. But anyway, back to this. All direct references to sex were deleted. And considering for the time, it's not a Tennessee Williams uh, film. For those of you who understand that Tennessee Williams definitely was a playwright and uh, he made his films rather risque even for the time, but it's not a Tennessee Williams film. Moving on. Renault's selling of visas for sex and Rick and Ilsa's previous sexual relationship were implied elliptically rather than referenced explicitly. And I, that's true. I think if 
even at the time in 42, if it was a little more explicit in regards to what they were up to, I, I don't think it would have had the same impact. The thing, the fact is that things are implied, you know, for those of adult listeners and viewers and watchers uh, can convey that particular aspect in their mind rather than actually having to hear it. Also in the original script, when Sam plays as time goes by, he's a pianist, Rick exclaims, what the are you playing? This line was altered to Sam. I thought I told you never to play, to conform to Breen's objection to an implied swear word. Oh, okay. That's that's cool. Um, although an initial filming date was selected for April 10th of 42, delays uh, led to production in the near the end of May, completing August 3rd, as I stated. It went 75000 over budget for a total cost of $1 million, equivalent to $13 million as of 2021, above average for the time. And yeah, I get that. The entire picture was shot in studio. Uh, the street used for the exterior shots had recently been built for another film, The Desert Song, and readdressed for Paris flashbacks. So, I mean, there were some aspects of Paris flashbacks, but it was more or less to me like a filler. I don't... I, I feel like what they had to say about their previous relationship until Laszlo shows up uh, who happens to be Elsa's husband, you know, because then he confesses to uh, Lazlo later on, like, hey, you know, we had a thing, you know, before you were in the picture, we thought you were dead due to being in a concentration camp, you know, during the war. Uh, they didn't really necessarily need to, I think, show Paris, but that's cool. They shed some light on it. I, I feel like what they had to say was enough to be said as it is anyway. That's just me. Uh, Roger Ebert calls Wallace the key creative force for his attention to details of production down to assisting on a real parrot in the blue parrot bar. And yeah, there is a parrot involved. I mean, you obviously can't tell what color it is because it is black and white, but regardless, still cool that they threw it in there. The difference between Ingrid Bergman's and Humphrey Bogart's height caused some problems. She was actually two inches taller than Bogart and claimed Curtis had Bogart stand on blocks or sit in cushions in their scenes together. That's funny. Later, there were plans for a further scene uh, showing Rick, Renault, and a detachment of free French soldiers on a ship to incorporate the Allies' 1942 invasion of North Africa. It proved too difficult to get Claude Rains for the shoot, and the scene was finally abandoned after David O. Selznick judged it. It would be a terrible mistake to make the change ending. The background of the final scene, which shows a Lockheed Model 12 Electra Jr. airplane, really cool sequence here too, uh, with the personnel walking around it, was staged using little person extras and a proportionate cardboard plane. Fog was used to make the model's unconvincing appearance. And... Yeah, they fooled me because even for the time, you know, I was looking at it like, how'd they do that? You know, so, all right, well, there you have it. Uh, Cinematography-wise, a veteran who had previously shot The Maltese Falcon, uh, Maltese Falcon also being a film that Humphrey Bogart was in as well as Peter Lorre. That is a really, really good noir. For those of you who haven't seen it or heard of it, check out The Maltese Falcon. It is really good. Uh, Cinematographer being Arthur Edison. Uh, Particularly, attention was paid to photographing uh, Bergman, and rightly so. He borderline does like, eh, I guess... I wasn't going to say Lucio Fulci eye zooms, but how about we'll say Lucio Fulci face zoom. And it it's so well. I mean, it it's so perfect, though. She was shot mainly from her preferred left side, often with softening gauze uh, filter to catch lights to make her eyes sparkle. The whole effect was designed to make her face seem ineffably sad and tender and nostalgic. Bars of shadows uh, across the characters and in the background variously imply imprisonment, the crucifix, the symbol of free French forces, and emotional turmoil. All of that from her face. Wow. Dark film noir and expressionist lighting was used in several scenes, particularly towards the end of the picture. Uh, effects are classic elements of the Curtis style, the director, along with fluid camera work and the use of environments as a framing device. Uh, yeah, it's, it's awesome. Uh, released in early of 1943, 
Uh, I already told you guys that. Oh, what do we got here? It went into the general release in 1923, or excuse me, 1943, January 23rd is what I was trying to say. Can't fucking speak English. To take advantage of the Casablanca Conference, a high-level meeting in the city between Prime Minister Winston Churchill at the time and American President FDR, Franklin D. Roosevelt. The Office of War Information prevented screening of the film troops in North Africa, believing it would cause resentment among Vichy supporters in their region. And yeah, I can definitely agree and get on board with that. Oh, boy. Uh, initial response. Uh, some of the reviewers were less enthusiastic compared to, uh, like, Ebert, for example, obviously. Um, well, then again, Ebert's obviously later on. Uh, the New Yorker at the time rated Casablanca only pretty tolerable and said it was not quite up to across the Pacific Bogart's last spy fest. But, I mean, yeah, he's like a spy in this, but he's a little more, I don't know, he's not nearly as, like, melodramatic or, I don't know, nearly as, like, mysteriously... He's rather provocative and seductive in this, but he's it's very subtle compared to his other films where he's a little more like in your face about it. And his noirs are just fantastic. But oh boy, the film grossed initially uh, two hundred fifty five thousand over ten weeks, the equivalent of three point four million as of twenty twenty one. Wow. Uh, enduring popularity on April 21st, 1957, the theater at Cambridge, Massachusetts showed the film as part of a season of old movies. It proved so popular that a tradition began in which that film would be screened during the week of final exams at Harvard University. That's pretty cool of that year. Wow. That's really cool. On the film's 50th anniversary, LA Times called Casablanca's great strength, the purity of its golden age Hollywoodness, and the endearing craftsmanship of its resonantly hokey dialogue. I don't find it hokey at all, but whatever you can believe whatever the hell you want uh bob strauss wrote in the newspaper that the film achieved a near perfect entertainment balance of comedy romance and suspense i can get on board with that because it definitely does all of that the romance is rather implied they only kiss a couple times it's not like oh boo -boo. you know it's not like lovey-dovey crap like you get with some of these other fucking films that are out there now comedy very very subtle and it's usually between um uh, the French uh, men and uh, Humphrey Bogart's character, Rick. Suspenseful pretty much the entire time because the Nazi regime is there and they're trying to obviously find uh, essentially people that are, you know, getting rid of or trying to, I guess, battle the Third Reich, I guess, if you will. Uh, Roger Ebert wrote of Casablanca in 1992, there are greater films, more profound movies, movies of greater artistic vision or artistic originality or political significance. But it's one of these movies that we treasure the most. This is what movie uh, that has transcended transcended the ordinary categories in his opinion the film is popular because the people in it are so good Cru uh, true it is a wonderful gem ebert says that he had never heard of a negative review of this film even though individual elements can be criticized true citing unrealistic special effects and the stiff character as laszlo portrayed by paul henright yeah he is rather it's, it's almost like he i don't know doesn't really have too much of a character as far as acting goes uh, paul henright's character is Laszlo, the uh, French um, husband to uh, Ingrid Bergman's character, Elsa. Uh, Leonard Malton considers Casablanca the best Hollywood movie of all time. Uh, and I've tried watching Citizen Kane, and that is considered one of the greatest classics of all time. And I feel like this film personally is better than that. Maybe I need to rewatch Citizen Kane. And if you go on IMDb, they still consider Shawshank Redemption as the greatest movie of all time. It's all subjective, but Shawshank Redemption, be damned, man, because that is a great fucking movie. <laughs> um, oh, boy. Uh, awards, Academy Awards, Outstanding Motion Picture for Warner Brothers, Best Director, Michael Curtis, Best Actor, Humphrey Bogart, Big Surprise, Nominated. The first two actually won uh, Director and Motion Picture. Uh, best Screenplay, won by Epstein Brothers and Howard Koch, nominated for Best Film Editing, Our Marks, Cinematography, Arthur Edison, the same guy behind uh, Maltese Falcon, Best Scoring of Dramatic or Comedy Picture, Max Steiner. It, it's, you know, it's one of those classics, man. It, it deserves all the praise that it gets. 
home media, Betamax and VHS, as well as magnetic video by uh, CBS and Fox as of 1991. Excuse me, it originally came out in 1989, the Criterion Collection on a laser disc. Wow. Uh, I have a VHS copy, which I believe on it did say 1992. And as of 1998, there was a DVD release. And as of HD... Uh, it also has an HD DVD release as of November 14th, 2006, and 2008 has a Blu-ray release. Remakes. Oh, geez. There better not be. They better leave it alone, son of a... Ugh. Let me read here. A newspaper article at the time mentioned uh, that Bogart and Greenstreet will continue their characterizations from the first film, and it is likely that the Geraldine Fitzgerald will have an important role. Uh, since then, no studio has seriously considered filming a sequel. Thank you, or a remake. Thank you. Leave it alone. Francois Truffaut. Uh, refused an invitation to remake the film in 74, citing its cult status among American students as his reason. Agreed. It, it has a cult following for a reason. Leave, thank you. Everyone, okay, everyone's being smart about it. I still got to read on, though, because I'm curious. Attempts to recapture the magic of Casablanca and other settings, such as Cabo Blanco, 1980, a South American set rooting, a retooling of the original film, and Havana, 1990, have been poorly received. Good. Okay, so they, they tried, but I'm glad that they didn't use the original title. Jeez, yeah, leave it alone. Oh, there's a colorization version uh, released in the 1980s, aired on the TV network WTBS in 84. Hired, uh, MGM actually hired Color Systems Tech to colorize the film for 180 grand. When Ted Turner purchased the film's uh, library two years earlier, he canceled the request before contracting American Film Technologies, AFT, in 88. Jeez, uh, Turner later reacted to criticisms uh, of the colorization, saying that it is one of the handful of films that really doesn't have to be colorized. Agreed. I did it because I wanted to. All I'm trying to do is protect my investment. Jeez, uh, yeah, okay, whatever. Okay, yeah. What do we got here? Uh, closing segments on Casablanca. Yeah, 25 minutes here. Sorry, guys. Another story is that the actors did not know until the last day of shooting how the film was going to end. Coke later acknowledged, Coke being one of the writers. When we began, we did not have a finished script. Ingrid Bergman came to me and said, which man should I love more? I said to her, I don't know. Play them both evenly. You see, we didn't even have an ending, so we didn't know what was going to happen. Wow, that's... That's crazy, and they end it rightly so. The way that I, I really wanted Humphrey Bogart to get on that plane, but he doesn't. And there's a turn of events, and he and the Frenchman walk away. You know, uh, she leaves with Laszlo. So there, I guess, is your spoiler for those of you who haven't seen it, or and then for those of you that don't care about spoilers. Uh, you know, she married Laszlo in the first place. They had their little thing because she thought Laszlo was dead. Uh, she and uh, Humphrey Bogart's character Rick, and you know, she falls. I guess reluctantly back in love with the other guy. Cause I mean, Humphrey Bogart's like trying to tell her like, you don't want to stay here with me. You want to go with him. You know, yeah, I know you thought he was dead, but he's still alive. Go with him. Great, great movie. Any chance you can to watch it. I'm sure it's aired on any form of cable or on a streaming service out there anywhere, but all right, moving on to the next thing. That was a long segment guys. All right, still got Honey, I Blew Up the Kid in the background, and I'm going to be talking about uh, The Boogeyman. It's not real. It's not real. It's not real. That is the tagline that it says on the cover. Uh, it's, it came out just this year. PG-13 is an hour 38 minutes, has a 6.1 out of 11,000, and yeah, it's it's decent for what it is. Uh, I believe it's um, an adaptation, um, yes, correct, from uh, The Mind of Stephen King, I was correct. Because uh, there's also a 1981 uh, Boogeyman film, as well as like a 2002-2003 Boogeyman film. But the 81 is more or less like a, it's like a supernatural kind of slasher, I guess, if you will. This one's more or less about like the, you know, I don't really want to give this one away. But it's about like, 
you know, the existence of a boogeyman, some sort of supernatural element of whatever. And it's interesting. Uh, for PG-13 films, they're, as far as horror, I'm usually kind of reluctant. Um, I got to finish it. Uh, I, well, actually, yeah, I got about maybe, I don't know, like 15, 20 minutes left on it. And uh, yeah, it's it's okay. It's all right. Um, it's a horror mystery thriller still reeling from the tragic death of their mother. A teenage girl and her younger sister find themselves plagued by a sadistic presence in their house and struggle to get their grieving father to pay attention before it's too late. Directed by Rob Savage. Let me see what else this uh, gentleman did. Oh, uh, boy. Uh, Host 2020. Oh, I liked that one. Uh, I actually really like that one as far as new horror. Uh, Dash Cam. I haven't seen that one. I hear mixed reviews about it. So I'm kind of curious about, yeah, but host was awesome. I've already talked about that on, uh, my uh, podcast before. So, I mean, I'm not going to get too much into that one. Uh, written by Scott Beck, Brian Woods, and Mark Heyman. It stars people I'm not really necessarily familiar with. I don't recognize them from anything. Uh, I'm just going to move on. I think they're all up, up and coming actors and actresses. Uh, all right. Uh, the tagline here, as far as storyline goes, it says, don't let it out, whatever. Rated PG-13 for terror, violent content, teen drug use, and some strong language. Yeah, sure, all right. I mean, I don't know. Like, it's just so hard to kind of be impressed by PG-13 horror films, I guess. Originally meant to be released straight to streaming on Hulu, but the strong reception from the test screenings prompted 20th Century Studios uh, to instead give it a wide theatrical release. Okay. It is the film adaptation of a short story written by Stephen King that was originally featured in a March 1973 issue of Cavalier Magazine and later in Night Shift, a collection of short stories all written by Mr. King himself, uh, which also is a pseudonym as well as Richard Bachman being a pseudonym, which Richard Bachman is the name on uh, the Total Recall film when it plays, the Arnold Schwarzenegger classic. Yeah, um, that is a classic. But uh, no, for some reason I was thinking about the other boogeyman that came out like 2002, 2000, something like that, like early millennium. That one's also in regards to like a supernatural kind of aspect, like taking over uh, a home. I think it's like the kid's doll or something. And there was like a couple sequels from that. It's really like the first couple minutes of that film that used to creep me out as a kid. After that, it, nothing special. I mean, this one, I like the 1980 or 81, whenever that one came out. I like that one for what it is. It's an interesting idea for a uh, pseudo-psychological, you know, poltergeisty slasher. You know, it's it's an interesting kind of film. And then this, this is definitely your typical, you know, paranormal type. Uh, but it's it's interesting. Uh, it's, it's all right. Yeah. Anyway. Some scenes were so intense that they had to be changed after test screenings because the audience screamed so loud that important dialogue after the scene was actually lost. The editing was changed to put in pauses so the dialogue could be heard. That's a trip. The YouTube video on how to contact the dead uh, that Sadie watches references Rob Savage's previous film, Host 2020. He's breaking the fourth wall for those of you that, well, now you know, since I mentioned that, yes, he did direct the host. With the same location and actress, Ceylon Baxter, from that film. Okay, I didn't recognize her. So excuse me. I apologize. Uh, later billings address it that it should be shown to be 217 Oak Drive, which is actually a nod to room 217 from Stephen King's The Shining. That's pretty cool that they also uh, break that aspect. They uh, get kind of meta there. Okay. All right here. Let's, uh, what else we got here? Released June 2nd. So it's only what, a month old? Yeah. A little over a month. Uh, language English, also known as Night Terror. Eh, sure. Filmed in Louisiana, New Orleans. Released by 20th Century Studios and Neo Real. Budget $35 million and it grossed $63 million so far. So I'd say it was a success. Let's see what Wiki has to say. Supernatural horror film directed by Rob Savage, as we already know. 
an adaptation of King's short story that was first announced in June 2018 with Beck Woods writing the screenplay. Uh, but the project was canceled in 2019 due to Disney's acquisition of Fox. Interesting. However, it was revived in November 2021 with Savage's uh, idea of directing the project. Thatcher Messina and Des Melchian and the rest of the cast signed in early of 2022. Principal photography began in February of 2022 in New Orleans, originally planned to be released on Hulu and then obviously opted for test screenings instead. Oh boy, production-wise, uh, it is a film adaptation of King's 1973 short story called The Boogeyman. In 20, uh, excuse me, June 26th, as of 2018, it was announced filmmaking partners Scott Beck and Brian Woods would write the screenplay with Sean Levy and Dan Levine and Dan Cohen attached to produce 21 Laps Entertainment, with 20th Century Fox set to distribute. Uh, in early 2022, a principal photography began in February, and then uh, Patrick Johnson? Yeah, Patrick Johnson composed the film score. So that's pretty interesting. Uh, released June 2nd, as of 2023, and it had an advanced screening, uh, actually at CinemaCon April 26th, so just about a week prior 2023 is part of the Walt Disney Studios presentation of their 2023 release schedule. So it has to, there's a tie-in with Disney on this? Like, interesting, whatever. Okay. Critical response. Rotten Tomatoes, 63% actually, out of 180. Uh, tech, re relatively positive reviews with an average of 6 out of 10. The consensus reads that it might fall short of its terrifying source material, but a spooky atmosphere and some solid performances help keep the chills coming. And I can actually kind of get on board with that. It had that ambiance that weird creepy atmosphere and then like the terrifying source material itself i'm like ah, eh. like there's there's good buildup, and then you're just like oh uh, okay whatever metacritic uh uses a weighted average assigning the film a, a 55 out of 100 based on 37 critics indicating mixed or average reviews audiences polled by cinema score giving the film a b minus on an a to f scale and i all of these are relatively similar um i guess aspects and ratings and i can pretty much get on board with that it was so far, I admit, like I said, I have about maybe 15, 20 minutes left of the film, and it's it's okay. It's it's all right. I'm just very, I guess, much so a harsh critic on one of those genres that I love as far as horror goes. And if it's a PG-13 film, I'm usually rather reluctant to watch it. But I was just like, well, it's a King-based uh, project, uh, Mr. Stephen King. I was like, I, I got to check this out. And it's the same guy who did The Host. I didn't know that before. I was like, now I'm, I have a little more accreditation towards this film to where I'm like, okay, I like it in its own pg-13 way because the host was awesome it was a really cool take on a uh, a seance with a paranormal activity kind of feel to it and i really liked that film but all right there you have it there's boogeyman on to the next thing oh boy all right still got honey i blew up the kid going on in the background it's classic i i almost like know it like by heart i've seen it so many times i love it i mean they're they're both great honey i shrunk the kids and honey i blew up the kid but that's not why you're here you're here to hear me talk about surviving the game thank you austin for the uh movie uh, reference of that particular time i had to watch it and i i liked it uh the tagline here is the thrill is the kill and rightly so because it's basically I'd say it's the original version of like Battle Royale meets uh, Hunger Games meets pretty much The Pest. And The Pest came out around the same time. Grand The Pest is a much more comedic version of this film. It is a 1994 rated R, hour 36, has a 6.2 out of 13,000 reviews. Is an action-adventure crime. Crime being that, yes, they are hunting a human being. Sure, he's homeless, but it's it, it was really cool. I, I'm, I'm glad that I watched it. And I expected... 
I don't know what I expected because uh, I know I asked my buddy Austin. I was like, hey, man, give me uh, some ideas for like uh, some action films to watch. And it, yeah, sure, it is an action film, but it's more or less like a survival version of that. Like like kind of like how The Edge was, you know, the survival in the woods. Then they clearly had to survive each other because Anthony Hopkins thought Alec Baldwin was going to kill him. Uh, Ice-T in this film, uh, Surviving the Game, essentially has to survive the entire time. And he has to basically kill everybody else before they kill him. And, you know, it's... It's a solid film, man. I, I really enjoyed it. A homeless man, a.k.a. Ice-T, is hired as a survival guide for a group of wealthy businessmen on a hunting trip in the mountains, unaware that they are killers who hunt him for sport and that he is their new prey. They even have like a plaque on the wall ready for him to go, and his name is Mason. Directed by Ernest R. Dickerson. Dickerson also did, I want to say he just did something else that I just watched. Um, Malcolm X, Juice, and uh, Do the Right Thing. Yeah. Okay. That uh, makes perfect sense. Okay. All right. Yeah, I, I was about to say, I feel like I just looked that name up. Roker Howard's in this, Ice-T, Charles S. Dutton, as well as Gary Busey. Um, it's a, has, it has a great cast. Uh, Roker Howard has like a ponytail and a beard. Ice-T has like dreads, like a mofo. Charles S. Dutton is in this. He gets his legs blown off when he steps onto a, uh, a quad that Ice-T, you know, rigged for him uh, to blow up in. It's awesome. Gary Busey's in this. He plays Doc Hawkins. He's one of the first guys to go. John C. McGinley, the guy from uh, Scrubs, is in this. He plays John Griffin. Um, F. Murray Abraham plays Wolf Sr., and he's also a very well-known actor as well. Uh, it, has a, it has a great cast, and it was just – it was something else, man. I really enjoyed it. It was a rugged kind of action film that's rather dark. It's not your typical run-of-the-mill uh, action film. Tagline is, uh, Jack Mason knows he's going to die someday, but today he's not in the mood. That's pretty funny. Uh, rated R for violence and language. Yeah, I can get on board with that because it's – Almost like every other word, Ice-T is like, motherfucker, you know, and then like as far as <laughs> violence, it, yeah, it's pretty violent. According to Rutger Hauer and Gary Busey, who wrote the entire dinner monologue about the origin of his scar himself, that was pretty interesting. That was a really cool sequence. Uh, the script had several scenes of Hauer's character, Burns, establishing his natural leadership by reminding the other hunters to abide by his rules. Originally, the dinner scene would be the moment where he puts Gary Busey's character, Doc, back in his place. However, on the day of rehearsals, Busey came up with a two-page monologue about his dog that he wanted to try out. Howard felt that Busey was obviously trying to steal his scene away by not giving him a chance to intervene in his monologue. So during the actual filming, Howard improvised a quick response to the story by calling it bullshit, which greatly confused Busey. However, Busey's delivery so impressed the director and the other actors that the monologue was actually kept in the final film and Howard's retort was not used. That's funny. That Busey essentially took the show from him and didn't allow Howard to do his uh, acting. That's funny. When the movie was released less than a year after Hard Target, they, uh, I believe that's a Van Damme film, with a similar plot about homeless people being hunted for sport. Yes, yes. Uh, no sets or sound stages were actually used. The entire movie was shot in real locations, trivially. The uh, derelict lamb where Jack Mason, Ice-T, lives in the old camper van is now a Bank of America parking lot. Wow. While staying in Wenatchee, uh, or Wenatchee, excuse me, Washington, Washington State, in September of 93, during the shooting of this film, uh, F. Marie Abraham was actually injured in a car crash, suffering a fractured wrist, bruised ribs, and a facial laceration. He was struck by Guy E. Katzenberg of Fall City, who was driving drunk, actually. Abraham's Chevy Lumina was wrecked, though he recovered, but Katzenberg was killed. Wow. That's pretty tragic. All right, let's, uh, <laughs> let's move on, because that's, that's rough. Uh, released April 15th, 1994. Uh, filmed in Wenatchee State Airport, Washington, USA. Also known as Dodd Spillett. I'm not quite sure what language it is, but every time I read something that doesn't make sense to me, it's always Transylvanian. Dodd Spillett is also the name of the film. Sure, why not? 
<laughs> production companies, New Line Cinema, New Line Productions. Budget, 7.4 million and actually grossed 7.7. So it only grossed 300K. Uh, I'm not quite sure why. It, it's a pretty enjoyable film, but, you know, it is an action-adventure directed by Ernest R. Dickerson, as I stated, uh, written by Eric Burnt, and it, uh, it was released April 15, 1994, received negative reviews from critics, and was a box office bomb, even though it grossed 300K, according to uh, Wikipedia. Sure. All right. Anyway, filming locations. Scenes actually are set in Seattle. However, some shots, the skyline of Philadelphia is actually used. The outdoor scenes are supposed to take place across the Oregon border in the U.S. Northwest. However, they were filmed in locations in Wenatchee, Washington, uh, as well as the lake out there. Or They're both featured in the film. Receptively. Excuse me. I had to burp. Tastes like peanut butter. Lovely. Anyway. <laughs> Currently holds 32% approval rating of Rotten Tomatoes based on 19 uh, reviews. That's... <laughs> Not very good. Whatever. Uh, that's unfortunate. Uh, Entertainment Weekly, Owen Glaberman called the film Cliffhanger with one-third the firepower. Why is it that? It always seems like action films, even like the ones that were the 80s and 90s, the golden age, personally, in my opinion, of action films, like, they always receive just like, eh, reviews. I, I don't know why people don't enjoy them. Like, you don't, I don't expect like, you know, I don't know, Vincent Price acting. I'm like, you go there to be entertained, but whatever. Uh, excuse me, Owen Gleiberman said, is that his name? Yeah, Gleiberman, what a name, saying that Dickerson, the director, does little to uh, differentiate from the other films of the genre. He did give praise to the cinematography, the efforts of the main cast, singling out Ice-T for having on-screen charisma, but being a bit unconvincing as an action star, concluding that still for a few moments there, the movie gives Robert Bly just what he deserves. Uh, the Austin Chronicle uh, news report has uh, they were critical of the script's characters overall messages being out of whack sophomoric but give credit to the actors portraying them and production team for being a vital element in Dickerson's filmmaking saying that he is a definite flair for action pictures but the stunning contributions from cinematographer Bazzelli add immeasurably to the film um, yeah I mean Ice-T was great in this I mean he's great in a Johnny Mnemonic with uh, Keanu Reeves I mean I don't think he gets enough credit personally just for just having fun is what it looks like. It doesn't seem like he overacts, underacts. He just looks like he's having fun, you know, and that's what it's all about. And I feel, I really, really felt that. Like when Gary Busey, I had no idea it was uh, improvised, that, you know, sequence about the dog that he loved when he was eight. And then his dad forces him into uh, like a kennel or something or some sort of like corral, like a with horses or something. And like, you know, the dog, uh, you know, attacks him because he uh, sets off fireworks. And then he has to kill the dog. And obviously, Roker Howard's like, bullshit. At the, like, I had no idea that sequence was improvised. But even I was captivated. I was like, whoa, I got to really pay attention to like this story that he's talking about. You know, it's obviously to scare Ice-T. And Ice-T is like, yeah, okay, whatever. Yeah, but it, it works. So I, I don't know why it doesn't get enough praise, personally. I thought it was a great film. But uh, there you have it. Surviving the game. On to the next thing. Right, I'm going to be talking to you guys about, man, this is a really, really cool, kind of messed up film, but uh, done by Frank Henelotter, the same guy behind uh, Basket Case and Frank and Hooker. I'm going to be talking brain damage. Uh, 1988, rated R, hour and 24, has a 6.5 out of 12,000 reviews, rightly so, with that um, score there as far as a rating, because, I mean, it, I'd say it even deserves like a 7. It was just batshit crazy. I mean, Frank Henelotter does a lot of crazy stuff. I mean, they even break the fourth wall and they show like the basket from Basket Case when he's on the subway, obviously paying homage to a previous film that he did in 1982. Uh, you know, and then obviously Franklin Hooker is kind of like an homage to like um, Reanimator per se with like a built, you know, woman that he falls in love with. Uh, the tagline here is, it's a headache from hell. 
cool cover art too, man. Brain damage. I, I really enjoyed this. It was so just bizarre and crazy, just borderline like H.P. Lovecraft type stuff. <laughs> Is it considered a horror comedy? And I can get on board with that. I agree with that. One morning, a young man wakes to find that a small, disgusting creature has attached itself to the base of his brainstem. The creature gives him a euphoric state of happiness, but demands human victims in return. And yeah, that's pretty much the premise. And yeah, he sticks this little stem into his brain. He gives him his juice or whatever, the weird voice that this creature has. <laughs> and uh, in return, obviously, um, Rick Hurst's character hunts down people and essentially gives the creature brains. Uh, written by Frank Henelotter as well. <laughs> Um, and Rick Hurst plays Brian. Uh, I don't really recognize anybody else in this, to be honest with you. But, uh, yeah, I mean, Rick Hurst did a great job. So, anyway, obviously it says more like this. Basket Case, of course, and Frankenhooker, as well as Society with the whole, uh, you know, body horror and From Beyond. Stuart Gordon is great. Uh, society with Brian Usna. I mean, come on, this is... This is just great. Let me see what the storyline here is. A young man has to live with a leech-like brain-eating parasite. True. That's very true. Who secretes a highly addictive blue fluid uh, into the young man's brain uh, stem as well as actually into his... Uh, it's more like his occipital lobe in the back of his head. So what it looks like. It's like this blue... like Kind of like a Kool-Aid-looking stuff, but it's like electrifying his brain too. The man must seek out human victims for the parasite so that the parasite can eat human brains. That's... Yeah. Anyway. The tagline here says, The movie that will blow your mind. Yeah, and rightly so. It, it, I was, I had a buddy sit next to me and watch it, and I was like, "Dude, you gotta check this out." I was like, "I've never seen it," and I was like, "I already, I have a feeling we're in for a treat," and we were definitely in for a treat, as you are as well. If you haven't seen it, I mean, listen up. Uh, during the fellatio scene, the crew walked out of the production, refusing to work on this scene. A similar incident happened during the shooting of a uh, basket case in 1982. That's crazy that people walked out. But then again, I can see that because, you know, he, Rick Hurst's character takes a, uh, like a hooker to the, behind a bar. He's obviously, uh, still stoned, you know, from the fucking blue juice that this creature gives him. And, uh, the creature essentially, because the, the girl wants to go down on him and, uh, you know, she unzips his, you know, thing. And obviously the blue creature comes out and it looks like she's giving the blue creature like fellatio and it essentially eats her brain, like through her mouth. It's so fucking, it's gnarly. And it's pretty cool though. Uh, on the subway, Brian sees a man carrying a basket with a lock on it. The character is Dwayne Bradley with Belial, uh, Belial excuse me, inside the basket from Frank Henelotter's previous film, Basket Case 1982, six years prior. See, they're breaking the fourth wall, and I love that. The theatrical and original home video releases of this film delete most of the gruesome scenes, such as the fellatio gag. Uh, and I actually found this pretty interesting, too. One of the gurgling sound effects used for Aylmer, uh, Aylmer being the uh, actual little blue parasite, he's, I'd say he's probably about a foot long. Um, it, it just looks like a blue chunky turd is what it looks like pretty much with teeth and eyes and this, yeah, it's, it's a bizarre looking thing. Uh, actually came from Rick Hurst, uh, the, the sound for Aylmer's, uh, sound effects. Hurst's stomach would make gurgling sounds if he drank coffee on an empty stomach. When Frank Henelotter found this out, he had, uh, Rick Hurst go into a sound booth and record that noise with a microphone placed against Hurst's stomach. That's crazy. Lastly, Frank Henelotter claimed that he had makeup effects uh, give Rick Hurst a split lip throughout the film because he thought he looked way too fucking pretty and that it was from a deleted fight scene. That's funny. Uh, yeah, because the whole film he does have, especially when he's like not stoned, he does have a, uh, a split lip. That's pretty funny. Uh, and yeah, they don't really explain it that apparently it's from a deleted fight scene. Well, now I know. Oh, wow. That's funny. Oh, boy. Um, released April 22nd, 1988. It is also known as Elmer the Parasite uh, and other 
countries of origin, I guess, where it's uh, viewed as. Filming locations, uh, New York, of course, it's pretty obvious, even though I've never been there, it just looked like New York. Production company, Palisades, Partners, Box Office, 900,000 estimate. There is no gross here. Let's see what Wikipedia has to say, if there is a gross, perhaps there is. Uh, film written and directed by Frank Hennelotter, as I already stated. Thank you, Wiki, for that. Uh, production on a budget of under $2 million. Uh, Yeah, I, I understand that. Now, Brain Damage is the second feature film by Hennelotter, obviously Baskin Case being his first. Principal photography and filming of Brain Damage took place in Manhattan in 87. Characterized as containing themes relating to both drug abuse and sexuality, though Hennelotter has downplayed such interpretations. Along with special makeup effects, the film makes use of mechanical puppetry and stop-motion animation. And it works, man. They... They did a really good fucking job on this. It received a limited theatrical release, premiering in select theaters before being released in L.A. the following month. The film initially garnered mixed reviews, but quickly acquired, uh, acquired, not required, excuse me, a cult following after being released on home video. An uncut version of the film was later issued on DVD and Blu-ray. Um, what do we got here as far as... Uh Drug abuse, themes and interpretations. Uh, let me explain. Brain damage was reportedly inspired by Frank Hennelotter's own cocaine addiction. In an 88 interview with Hennelotter, uh, Bob Martin of Fangoria referred to the imageries of Aylmer's needle entering the back of Brian's neck as being invocative of drug abuse. And rightly so, I get it. Hennelotter actually uh, stated this. To me, the drug is a function of the plot, and that's that. To see Aylmer as a metaphor for real drugs is a very narrow reading. The needle, the fluid, all of that simply moves the plot. In broader terms, Aylmer, the uh, parasite, and all of that was simply a free ride, a way out of escapism. There are many other avenues for that besides drugs, but drug imagery was a simple, easy way of expressing that in this film. Okay. He likened the film to a supernatural adaption of Faust, a reading echoed by LA Times critic uh, Leonard Clady. Hennelotter rejected the notion that brain damage could be reasonably viewed as a pro-drug uh, in nature, stating that if I plan to portray drugs as pleasurable, Brian wouldn't have lost everything that had uh, meaning to him. Makes perfect sense, because he loses his girlfriend, his way of life, the way where he's living, everything. Uh, he's left alone with his pleasure, and then what's the point? He then asserted that the film is neither pro-drug nor anti-drug in relation to real-life drug issues, but instead a monster movie. Ahead of the film's release in Australia... Uh, the Age, uh, apparently a news article, argued that brain damage can be interpreted as an allegory about drug use with the monster Aylmer standing in for heroin and Brian as an addict. And yeah, that's one. That's probably one of the biggest ways to view it. The allegory is underlined by the use of the language of addiction in the film's dialogue. The allegory's message is that death is the only cure for heroin addiction. Yeah. In 2017, journalist Michael Gringold wrote of the film that appearing in the midst of the Just Say No anti-drug campaign initiated by First Lady Nancy Reagan, uh, the, the portrait of the young man trying to kick a parasitical habit was especially trenchant. Wow. Uh, another thematic uh, aspect here is sexuality. As well as invoking drug use, Martin viewed Aylmer's needle eating Brian's neck as a pretty grim anti-sexual image. Interesting. In response to Martin's interpretations of the film's screenplay as being representative of dread sexual intercourse, Hennelotter stated, well, here we go, there's more. Uh, <laughs> oh no, I don't think so at all. I don't agree with that at all. In an earlier version of the script, I had Aylmer, the parasite, so sexual in nature that it was dangerous. Some of that carries over. But the thing is, anytime someone... Uh, misses sex and horror it's assumed that it is someone who hates sex or is loathing of it and that just is not so Hennelotter lauder did acknowledge a sexual undertone in the film adding though get this one of the guys in the lab was saying oh my god you're making some kind of weird statement here you've got a monster that looks phallic and it does uh talking about his juice yes what can i say it's obvious there I didn't set out to put it there. That's simply what the imagery turned out to be. I'm not about to change the imagery just to eliminate the idea that 
you guys think it looks like a phallic symbol. Okay, got it, got it, got it. Okay, and yeah, it does. Uh, brain damage makeup effects uh, artist Gabe Bartolos uh, later acknowledged that the phallic nature of Elmer's design, including its overall shape and veiny texture, and said that such elements were encouraged during the design process. In 2003, Scott Aaron Stein noted that Elmer's design as being a bit phallic. I do sense someone making a statement about male sexuality. Uh, I, I guess it's up to the interpretation because Hennelard denied all that. He was like, I just made it just the way that I made it. I wasn't thinking about any of that. So, you know, interpret however I guess you want, really. In 2022, Henra Giardina of Into wrote that the film contains elements of homoerotic subtext and serves as an allegory for the transmasculine experience. Just, it's a fucking movie. Just enjoy it for what it is. You don't have to read that far into it, but I'm almost done. Let me read this. It's so weird. Setting the Elmer's phallic design and Brian waking up to find himself covered in blood, uh, which she likens to menstruation, sure, whatever, as well as comparing Aylmer's juice to both semen and hormone replacement therapy. I mean, you could... It's 1988, and Frank Hennelotter just stated, like, he was like, I just made it just to have fun. Like, you guys are thinking too far into it. But I had to read it because I was curious. Yeah, okay. Development and casting. Elmer the Parasite is what it was originally going to be called. He was literally uh, writing the last of the scenes, Hennelotter stated. Initial plans by New Jersey-based company Rugged Films, who had temporarily owned the distribution rights to debut the feature film Basket Case in 82 to finance brain damage did not come to fruition initially. Brain damage was ultimately financed by Cinema Group, investing 1.5 into the production. Rick Hurst and Jennifer Lowry were all-time first actors, and Brain Damage remains Lowry's only film credit as an actress. Wow. Hennelotter wanted Hurst to have some kind of edge as Brian, uh, so he had a scar added to Hurst's lower lip during filming. He said it was the funniest choice that I think uh, that I think Frank made for me, stating that Hennelotter felt that I needed to have as a part of the character, otherwise I'd look too pretty. So it's relatively similar to what Wiki and IMDb has to say about that statement. The crew of Brain Damage included veterans Basket Case and 1987 Street Trash. Street Trash was awesome. Also incredibly just bizarre and out there for those of you who haven't seen it or heard of it. Street Trash is awesome. He has a steady cam, uh, Jim Murrow, uh, who worked on Street Trash, used this and also in this film on all three films, actually, Basket Case, Street Trash, and this one as well, uh, Brain Damage. As the director of Street Trash, uh, seven Brain Damage crew members also had worked on 88's Slime City, including Jim Miro, director of Street Trash, and director Greg Lamberson of Slime City, the latter of whom served as first assistant director on this film, Brain Damage. A little bit of a mouthful there, excuse me. All right, let me get into the special effects because there's some cool shit here. Uh, Al Maglia... Shoot. Uh, give me a second. Uh, that's that's the name. Al Maglia Ketty? Sure. Who would serve as stop-motion animator and optical effects on brain damage, received screenplay for the film from Hennelotter and lent it to Bartolos. Bartolos being the guy who worked on it, uh, more or less. He, they were working together initially on uh, 86's uh, Spookies, is what I'm reading. Uh, I think I have Spookies. I just don't think I've seen it yet. Uh, Magliotti, or excuse me, Maglichetti, recalls Hennelotter wanting Aylmer's design to resemble a black dildo. Okay, so that kind of just puts it into fruition. That even though, okay, well now I kind of... <laughs> I, I revoke my statement about how I, I was like, oh, Hennelotter just was having fun and made a film. Okay, I'm reading on, and now uh, he wants it to look like a black dildo, but he doesn't want it to be sexual? Like, uh, okay, uh, yeah, okay, okay, whatever. Moving on, Bartolos has stated the discussion of this design involved the mention of a phallus and a turd. So you want it to look like a dick and a, a shit. Nice job. As well as cartoonish mouth and eyes. So yeah, I mean, I guess... You want it to look like a piece of shit dick with mouth and eyes. And, well, mission accomplished. It's a fucking weird-looking Mr. Hinky. How about that? If that's what you want me to call it, that's what I'll call him. It's not Aylmer anymore. It's the, 
the pre-Mr. Hanky uh, parasite from hell. During the process of creating a, skip of a, a sculpt of Aylmer, suction cups were integrated into its design. There were two primary cable-operated puppets of Aylmer created for the film, actual size, and an oversized puppet used for close-up shots. Yeah, because that makes sense. For the scene in which Aylmer kills the junkyard watchman, uh, which I believe is one of the first kills, they built a half-creature that was attached to this prosthetics on the actor Bradley Rhodes' head. Uh, they rigged a mechanical device that allowed the creature to move independently of the actor playing the guard. The sequence also features a stop-motion model of Aylmer that is seen eating the watchman's brain. Yeah, that's cool. And then he drops to the ground. The same model is again later used in the film during a shot where Aylmer leaps onto a man sitting in a bathroom stall. That was also cool. The Aylmer model was constructed using a cold inner foam and an outer layer made of hot baked latex foam rubber. Uh, a calf brain purchased from a deli was used in shots which Aylmer's fluid can be seen coating Brian's brain. Okay, obviously it wasn't a real brain or Brian's real brain. So they're using a, a cow's brain. The electricity seen crackling in these shots was animated by Maglia Ketty. Okay, who obviously worked with uh, Bartolos. Okay, that's, that's pretty cool. Using a plaster cast of Rick Hurst, multiple models of brain, uh, Brian's head. Obviously, I'm sure that's a play on. They probably did that on purpose. So uh, this film is going to involve brains. How about we name him Brian and we can confuse our audience. I'm sure that's probably the plan. Brian's head was sculpted for the film as well as fiberglass body that was constructed for the zipper scene, the fellatio aspect, in which Elmer emerges from the flies of uh, Brian's pants into the mouth of the blonde woman from the nightclub. A collapsible model of Elmer was ins uh, inserted into the actress's uh, Vicky Darnell's mouth in the film, excuse me, and while being filmed, pulled out using reverse motion photography. Okay. Uh, okay. I, I, that makes sense now. So they just reversed it. The final footage appears to show Aylmer entering her mouth, hence the reverse aspect. I get it. For the subsequent shot of Aylmer exiting her mouth with a mouthful of brain matter, Bartolos sewed calf brains to a model of Aylmer, and Darnell uh, was provided with uh, Banaka breast spray before the take began. Oh, wow. Hennelotter estimated that about 15 20 minutes of coverage was filmed for that scene. That's insane. To uh, achieve the desired velocity of blood and brain matter gushing out of the side of Brian's head during one of the uh, withdrawal induced hallucinations, the effects team placed Hurst on a metal brace on an angle of 45 degrees with a camel at a uh, with a camera at a matching angle. After filming Hurst's screaming at a said angle, the crew filmed the same shot with Hurst in frame and dumped fake blood and gore down a large piece of heat ducting. The two shots were then composited together, making it appear as though the blood is pouring out of Brian's head. Wow. The shots of Elmer emerging from Brian's mouth on the subway were animated by Maglichetti. The effect involving uh, lining up the articulated model of Elmer with projection of relevant frames from the film. He then animated Elmer frame by frame using stop motion. That's so cool. I love stop motion, especially when it's done right. And it was. This film is phenomenal uh, as far as just weird, bizarre crap to watch. Uh, Aylmer, the model out of each of the resulting frames using an X-Exacto knife, actually, include each cut out of the animation cells he then line up to the film footage. A shot of light beams shining out of Brian's bedroom window in the final scene of the film, accomplished using a miniature brick facade of a side of an apartment building, fashioned together by Maglia Ketty with parts from a dollhouse supply store affixed to a plank of wood. Maglia Ketty stood behind the miniature and waved around a slide projector. Makes sense, because now I, I can picture it. Causing flashing lights to be projected through the miniature window. Post-production. It was edited at a night in film center building, allowing low-budget productions to utilize its film and sound editing facilities after hours for free. So as long as they clean the space by 8 p.m. when the paying customers arrived. That's cool. The first cut of the film was actually around 66 minutes in length, which uh, Hennelotter and he had to adjust the pacing in order to extend its runtime. Okay, makes sense. That's crazy that it was actually under 
initially. Usually they're kind of over and then they edit it to where they want it to be. Uh, so that's crazy. Okay, pre-release. In the interview with uh, Martin, Henenlotter stated that the distributors expected the zipper scene to be considered too graphic for an R rating, but the MPAA resulting in the scene being edited down. He added, apparently the MPAA won't allow us to show Brian biting into her brain. I don't know yet, though. There's still a big question mark around some of this. This is obviously pre-release. Uh, this is pretty cool that I actually get to read this. The film was edited down for an R rating for its initial theatrical release. Of course it was. The release of Brain Damage was accompanied by the public publication of a novelization by uh, Martin, limited to a 1,000 signed and numbered copies. The book was published in a hardcover under the Boslin Press imprint. Ah, man, I would love to read that and see the differences and the comparisons. Wow, that's... That's insane. Home media-wise, July 1988, Betamax and VHS. The zipper scene actually remained truncated for the VHS release, would not be made available until the film was released on DVD. In 2007, uncut version released on DVD. And uh, in 2022, Brain Damage was made available for streaming on the streaming service Fandor. Never heard of that one. I know Shudder. Shout out to Shudder. May 9th, 2017, released on Blu-ray and DVD. Once again, Reception. New York Daily News called Brain Damage one of the year's more original fright exercises, blending visceral shocks with twisted black humor and low-budget psychedelic tableau uh, to rival the old Joshua Light show. And rightly so. Yeah, it's yeah, I, I like that. Okay, uh, L.A. Times' Leonard Clady referred to the film as a veritable crazy quilt of ideas that manages to engage our attention while our heads continue to dart away from the shocking images on screen. Yeah, it's it's overly sexualized. It's overly drug-induced, even though Henry Lauder's like, no, I don't want any of that to be interpreted in my film, but... He even asked for a black dildo. I mean, come on. Or the creature to look like a black dildo. But then yet you don't... Anyway, I'm just saying that it it works in every aspect. It, it shocks you and it, it... It's a sign of the times, man. It's really cool. It, New York Times labels it as a brainless movie. Ha, ha, ha. Criticizing the acting and special effects. I like the uh, special effects. And the acting for what it is. I mean, for a lot of these guys being first-time actors, it, it works. It is a little more than a meaningless exercise in slime, is what they had to say. Uh, the ages Neil Gillette, calling it a comedy in somewhat poor taste, while brain damage is not ad advocatory, advocate, yes, an advocacy, sure, it's <laughs> of drug abuse. It's a message is hardly helpful to the anti-drug campaign. Yeah, right, and I can see where they're coming from. You know, uh, Rotten Tomatoes gives it a 67% out of 15 critics. Wow, they actually gave it... A relatively good score for a horror film and on metacritic it has a weight average of 61 out of 100 generally favorable favorable reviews that's insane so i'm on board with that i yeah i want to close out with that brain damage frank henenlotter uh he also did frankenhooker and basket case this is his sophomore film in between those two this is a great fucking movie just overly drug abundant and overly sexually explicit you know i guess it's up to interpretation because that's not how he wanted it to be perceived but that's kind of how I perceived it now, having read about all this. But uh, it's a trip, man. Go watch it. Brain damage. All right, next thing. All right, this one needs to be talked about if it hasn't already been uh, discussed on any forum. For those of you that don't know, this is probably one of the first like spoof comedy, skit comedy like of all time. Or at least that I feel like that as far as one of the earliest that I've ever seen. It is a series of short, highly irreverent, often tasteless skits. And rightly so, that is probably the best plot to at least give it because it, none of it really makes sense. It's making fun of everything, pop culture, anything and everything you can name it. 
sexuality, racism, every, like it just, nobody is safe in this film. It's hilarious. It's great. Directed by John Landis, obviously that being a staple. And as far as uh, everybody's name and homes, everybody should know who uh, John Landis is. But I mean, if you don't, he's known for directing the Blues Brothers, the Twilight Zone film in 83 with uh, Dan Aykroyd, Schlock in 1973, as well as the Blues Brothers 2000 as a producer in 1998. Um yeah, John Landis has been around for a long time. Written by David Zucker, Jim Abrams, and uh, Jerry Zucker. Uh, starring a bunch of really next to, like, nobodies. Uh, the cover art is awesome. It looks like it's a, you know, World War II, uh, like, dogfight kind of uh, pinup woman on an airplane with a uh, Kentucky Fried Chicken leg with, uh, like, bomb wings on it as if she's dropping a bomb. And it's just such an iconic 77, uh, you know, film. It's rated R, hour and 23 minutes, 6.4 out of 19,000 reviews. I think it deserves more. It's one of the first of its kind. It's just, it's so revolutionary. I mean, it's, it's incredible. Uh, David Zucker's even in the film. He makes, uh, you know, <laughs> he has a segment in regards to like a new car. Uh, Barry Denon is uh, Claude Lamont. Um, <laughs> it's just, it's something else, man. Like they, you know, they don't, okay, here, let me explain a little more. So storyline, uh, Madcap spoof, a collection of comedy skits, including the Kung Fu parody, A Fistful of Yen. Uh, in relation to, like, um, Bruce Lee films of the time. And a Catholic schoolgirl's in trouble. That's pretty funny. Uh, enjoy the future of movie going with a feel-around theater experience. That was pretty funny. That was also, like, making fun of, like, 4D and futuristic type stuff that was going to happen eventually in theaters. Uh, see a, a notable and highly respected actor as the clumsiest waiter in motion picture history. Watch uh, such characters as Cleopatra Schwartz and Big Jim Slade. Uh, a football player tickle your funny bone until it has to be removed surgically uh, the respected or excuse me the actor who is the clumsiest waiter in motion picture history that was donald sutherland so i do remember that uh, aspect there was a cameo which was pretty funny in regards to that taglines is uh, the first in feel around that's pretty funny trivially there's got to be some interesting stuff on this one right let's see uh, original titles for the film included free popcorn and closed for remodeling that's pretty funny Presumably, both were rejected for the confusion that they would cause uh, when displayed in a theater marquee. That's funny. The uh, gorilla Dino is uh, played by special effects makeup artist Rick Baker, wearing the prototype design he made to audition for King Kong in 76. That's funny. In the Fistful of Yen sketch, <clears throat> when Lou first meets Dr. Klon, the Chinese characters start speaking in Korean. Klon says, sorry to Korean fans that were talking random things in Korean, but someone asked me to speak in Korean, so I just have to. That's funny. Uh, the nunchaku scene in Fistful of Yen was originally cut from the UK release because nunchucks are an illegal weapon in Britain and Ireland. As I stated before, Teenage Mutant Hero Warriors compared to Teenage Mutant Ninja Warrior or Turtles over here in the States. Same kind of uh, commodity here, unfortunately. Authorities only recently loosened restrictions on displaying them uh, on that particular television uh, and as well as film for the time. The opening prologue of the film's on-set home video featured on the DVD special feature states that the following 8mm home movies were shot on the sets of Kentucky Fried Movie in 77 by David Zucker and Jerry Zucker to send home to their parents to prove to their parents that they were working in Hollywood. That's pretty funny. <laughs> wow. Uh, goofs, what do we got here? During the Fistful of the End sequence, the tour guide mentions that the tanks containing the chemicals for germ warfare can each hold 4,000 cubic liters. The liter is already a unit of volume. So the phrase cubic liters doesn't really mean anything at all. It kind of trumps the whole situation. That's pretty funny. Uh, there's one quote here. In the past year, over 800,000 Americans have died. Despite millions of dollars of research, death continues to be our nation's number one killer. <laughs> that was probably the 11 o'clock news is when that guy said that. That's pretty fucking funny. Oh, boy. Um, let's see what we got here as far as uh, release November 4th, 1978 in Japan initially. 
Uh, country of origin, obviously, being the U.S. Languages spoken, English and Korean, obviously. And it is also known as the 11 o'clock news, which makes sense because that's what I just stated. The, <laughs> the leading cause of uh, death is the number one killer. That's funny. Uh, filmed in Rialto Theater, Fair Oaks Avenue, Pasadena, California. A production company is United Film Distribution Company as well as Kentucky Fried Theater at the time. Box office budget at the time was 600K. That's crazy. Let's see what else we got here on uh, Wiki. Now, the Wiki cover shows a little something different. It's um, It looks like a Converse high top with a Coca-Cola and the Statue of Liberty. It still says the Kentucky Fried movie, but it just it's a different drawing compared to the other one. So that's interesting. It is a 1977 American independent sketch comedy film produced by Kim Jorgensen, Larry Kostroff, and Robert Weiss, directed by John Landis. Uh, cameos featuring George Lazenby, Bill Bixby, uh, Henry Gibson, Barry Denon, Donald Sutherland, as I mentioned, as the waiter, uh, Tony Dow. <laughs> I say it like that because every time I hear that name, it makes me think of, uh, you know, Leave it to Beaver because the, what is it? Uh, shoot, it's um, Barbara Billingsley, Tony Dow, and Jerry Mathers as the Beaver. Yeah, oh my gosh. Uh, Leave it to Beaver is classic. Uh, Stephen Bishop and the voice of Shadow Stevens. According to writer David Zucker on the DVD commentary track, David Letterman auditioned for the role of the newscaster, the newscaster, excuse me, but was not selected. The film also features many members of the Groundlings and the Second City. Feature presentation portion of the film starring Evan Kim as Hapkido Grandmaster Bong Su Han. Uh, marked the first film appearances of a number of actors who later became famous. I'm not surprised. And launched the careers of the Zucker brothers, Abraham or Abrams and uh, John Landis, of course. He was recommended to direct the National Lampoon's Animal House in 78 based on his work with this film a year later. That's crazy. So, I mean, hey, good for him, man. Uh, the film's writers were the team of who subsequently wrote the directed uh, Airplane, Top Secret, and Police Squad television series and its film spinoffs, and then obviously the Naked Gun films. So they started with this, and makes perfect sense you you can you can tell um it's it's crazy uh it contains largely unconnected sketches that parody various film genres including exploitation films make makes sense early uh, kung fu films like enter the dragon fistful of uh, yen as in like a fistful of dollars the uh sergio leone clint eastwood uh spaghetti western it parodies disaster films like uh, that's armageddon black exploitation films cleopatra schwartz Softcore porn, women in uh, Catholic high school, girls in trouble, coming attraction trailers, which was pretty funny. Uh, it also fictionalizes produce um, by Samuel Bronkowitz, a conflation of Samuel Bronston, uh, also a spoof B-movie producer, American International Pictures co-founder, uh, Z. Arkoff. The sketch, See You Next Wednesday, mocks theater-based gimmicks like uh, sense around by depicting a dramatic film presented in a feel-around. I mean, that's so funny. He gets, like, slapped. The guy's playing with his head and he even, like, massages his shoulders and feel around. It's so funny. Other sketches, spoof TV commercials, programs, news broadcasts, classroom educational films. Uh, the city of Detroit and its high crime rate are a running gag portraying the city as a hell on earth and a fistful of yen. Pretty funny. The evil drug lord orders a captured CIA agent to be sent to Detroit and the agent screams and begs to be killed instead of the villain, ignores him, and sends him on his way to Michigan. That's funny. Uh... Uh, yeah, there's Argon Oil AM Today, uh, which obviously, you know, there's the 11 o'clock news, Catholic High School Girls in Trouble, Nitex PM, which they're making fun of, commercial for a drug that cures headaches by rendering the purchaser unconscious. Pretty funny, you know, she pours water on him, she's slapping him, trying to wake him up, and it's like a pun on uh, Tylenol PM. Uh, the Headache Clinic, the Household Odors, when, uh, oh yeah, it's like a... <laughs> Some ladies trying to play bridge and like some women come over and they're like, oh, it smells like shit in here. It smells like dead fish. And, you know, when she's like, I'm always worried about how my house smells pretty funny. The Wonderful World of Sex is pretty funny. Uh, the Kansas City Chiefs um, 
you know, Big Jim Slade shows up after the guy has premature ejaculation. He throws, like, a record on it. It tells him, like, step-by-step, step, like, how to have sex. It's pretty funny. Fistful of Yen is, you know, a 30-minute segment in regards to uh, basically making fun of uh, Kung Fu meets, obviously, um, Fistful of Dollars. It's it's pretty funny. The 11 o'clock news comes and goes. It keeps coming back and forth. Uh, making fun of That's Armageddon, the disaster film. Uh, makes fun of crude oil. Uh, zinc and oxide, uh, eyewitness news, and then it closes out with an 11 o'clock news. I mean, it's, it's so funny. Um, production wise, um, Abrams made the rounds of the Hollywood studios with the concept and were rejected by all of them being told audiences didn't like movies composed of sketches. I disagree since the three believed in their material, which they had honed in for audiences with their improvisational troupe, Kentucky fried theater. They decided to make the movie on their own. Instead, a wealthy real estate investor offered to finance the film if they would write a script. After completion of the screenplay, the investor had second thoughts and decided that they would not, that he did not want to finance the film alone. He said he would try to attract other investors if three filmmakers would produce a 10-minute excerpt of the film, which he would finance. When the trio presented a budget of the short film to the investor, he actually backed out. Crazy. Uh, the prospect of shooting for the short film so excited the trio that they decided to pay for it themselves. The 10-minute film cost 35 k and with it, they then again approached the Hollywood studios. This time, they attached a young director named John Landis to the project, who came to their attention after an appearance on The Tonight Show promoting his first film, Schlock, which came out a couple years prior. However, once again, the studios turned them down. As Like, once again. That's crazy. Distribution and release. Uh, curious as to how the audience would react to this film, they persuaded exhibitor Kim Jorgensen to show it before one of... The, uh, the regularly scheduled films. When Jorgensen saw the short, he fell out of his seat laughing. He was so impressed that he offered to raise the money needed to make full-length version by having his fellow exhibitors screen the film before uh, audiences in their theaters. He convinced them to put up 650k as a budget. When released, Kentucky Fried Movie was a box office success, returning domestic American rentals uh, of 7.1 million. Wow. Uh, released on DVD in 2000. Uh, what do we got here? In 2011, it had a Region 2 released a special edition DVD uh, disc, apparently, with a collector's booklet, uh, a bunch of behind-the-scenes aspects. So that's pretty cool. I would love to get that one. In July 2nd, 2013, Shout Factory, hell yeah, released a Blu-ray aspect widescreen transfer with filmmaker commentary and everything, interviews and so forth. That's awesome. Oh, actually, it sounds like Rotten Tomatoes has something nice to say about it. it. has a score of 81% based on reviews from 32 critics. Uh, the site's consensus reads that now obscure pop culture references and spoof commercials add to Kentide. Wow, Kentide. Yep, Kentide. Fuck. Kentucky Fried Movies. Can't speak English, apparently. That's like your third one, I think, of this episode. Uh, and I am speaking rather fast, so I'm surprised that it only three times. Whatever. Anything goes spirit and uh, wit is what they were trying to uh, convey here. Rotten Tomatoes. Metacritic, a score of 61% out of 10 critics, indicating generally favorable reviews. Variety described the film as having excellent production values and some genuine wit. Nice. Also noted that the film was juvenile and tasteless. It is, but if you're in the mood for just scattershot crap, I mean, go for it, man. It's it's funny. It's awesome. I loved it. Uh, Pop Matters wrote um, J.C. Masek, who uh, works for them. However, profane, experimental, violent, silly, hilarious, and occasionally quite sexually explicit, all of which were surely helped its success over the years. It's uh, ranked number seven on uh, 87, excuse me, on Bravo's 100 Funniest Movies list. And rightly so. It's it deserves to be on a top list because it was one of the first of its time. Like sketch comedy, I don't really feel like it was really done before that unless it was like TV. But this is a movie that they made sketch comedy. So there you have it. Kentucky Fried Movie. Awesome. Loved it. I believe it was free on Tubi if I'm not mistaken for a long time. I don't know if it's still there. But uh, go watch it. Next thing.
Oh boy, finishing up the film, honey, I blew up the kid. Well, having seen it a million times and I'm watching it and I figured, well, why not talk about it since I did talk about Honey, I Shrunk the Kids recently. 1992, rated PG, an hour and 29 minutes. It has a very poor rating and I, I don't know why. I really enjoyed it. I thought it was just as good as the first one. It's a different aspect. It's basically the same thing. Just like, you know, when you, you know, play Crash Bandicoot 1 and 2, it's basically the same thing. Or, you know, Spyro 1, 2, and 3. They're relatively similar. The same kind of fetch questy, Jack and Daxter, Sly and Cooper, Ratchet and Clank. They, they, you know, they did it right the first time. That's why they extended it the second time. Anyway, enough about that. Okay. It's an adventure comedy family. Uh, the Selinsky family is back. This time, hilarious disaster strikes when an experiment causes their new toddler son to grow many stories tall. Uh, directed by Randall Kleiser. Let's see what else this individual did because I don't recognize the name. Recognize his face, though. Uh, he did Grease, wow, directed that one, 1978, uh, Blue Lagoon in 1980, White Fang, I don't think I've seen that, Flight of the Navigator, that is a Disney film as well in 1986, I don't think it personally holds up as well as it, uh, it it's a, not that great of a film, Grease is timeless, I absolutely fucking love Grease, I don't think I've seen Blue Lagoon, and I've probably seen iterations of White Fang, if I'm not mistaken, Flight of the Navigator, it's just, uh, it's, it's kind of dated, but all right, let's get back to Honey, I Blew Up the Kid. That's just my opinion. Maybe I'll rewatch that one and talk about it because I still, I have it uh, and it's it's okay. This film is actually written by Stuart Gordon and Brian Usna. Stuart Gordon doing uh, Reanimator as well as From Beyond, Brian Usna doing Society, and I believe he did, it was the fourth installment of uh, Silent Night, Deadly Night, if I'm not mistaken. So both well-known as far as special effects, so I'm sure they were involved as far as uh, special effects are concerned there, that's pretty cool. Uh, also written by Ned, uh, excuse me, Ed Naha, starring Rick Moranis, Marcia Strassman, and Robert Oliveri. Um, I, obviously, Rick Moranis playing Wayne again, Marcia Strassman playing Diane uh, Selinsky, and she it looks like a fox in this, just like she did in the first film, so more power to her. Uh, Joshua Schalaker plays Adam. Lloyd Bridges plays Clifford Sterling. Lloyd Bridges being the father of Jeff and Bo Bridges. Lloyd Bridges is also in uh, Jane Austen's off, uh, Mafia in the 90s. That's a pretty... Damn fucking funny film. I mean, he did a lot of stuff in his younger days, but he did some funnier stuff later on in life as well. Um, Carrie Russell plays uh, Mandy, a.k.a. Felicity is who she is. Amy O'Neill actually plays Amy Selinsky once again. Um, who else we got here? Anybody else that's really recognizable? What else we got? I don't recognize anybody else. All right, moving on. Wayne Selinsky is at it again, but instead of shrinking things, he tries to make a machine that can make them grow instead as uh in the first one, it isn't necessarily quite as accurate as it should be. When he brings his sons, Nick and Adam, to see it, he starts working unexpectedly. And when Adam comes right up to it, he gets zapped along with his stuffed bunny. Now, whenever he comes near anything electrical, it causes him to grow. He soon reaches a height of 112 feet. Wow, to be exact, sure, why not? He is now walking through uh, Las Vegas when he thinks he is in one big playland. Yeah, I love that scene when he just picks up the guitar from the hard rock and starts jamming on it. So, so iconic, it's dumb, but it's, it's fun, man. Taglines here is the big laugh starts January 6th. That's a video ad for it. That's a dumb tagline. What does it say on the box? Uh, I don't see anything on the box. It's just a giant foot about to step on Rick Moranis and a cork from the first movie. Uh, the dog is also in this film again. All right, anyway, trivially, what do we got here? No tagline, huh? Okay, well, other than that video ad, that was pretty dumb. Much of the dialogue between Wayne and Adam is actually such as the bedtime story and feeding time was improvised by Rick Moranis in response to whatever Daniel Schalaker and Joshua Schalaker, the twins who played Adam, happened to be saying at the time. Interesting. Uh, originally going to be titled Honey, I Blew Up the Baby, but was changed due to a fear of negative feedback for the title. Yeah, yeah, I can get on board with that. It's also known as that, too, in other regions I noticed as well. Uh, as a result of the film, Disney later found itself the subject of lawsuit. The suit was filed in 91 by Mark Goodson Productions, director Paul Alter. Alter. 
it just sounds weird, who claimed to have come up with the idea of an oversized toddler after babysitting his granddaughter watching her topple over her blocks. He wrote a screenplay titled Now That's a Baby, that's whatever, uh, which had not been made into a film but received some sort of treatment beforehand. After claimed there were several similarities between the movie and his script, consisting of the baby daughter of two scientists fall victim to a genetic experiment gone wrong instead of an enlarging ray. The case went to trial in 93 with the jury finding an alter's favor, actually. Disney was forced to pay 300 grand in damages as a result. That's a trip. The film was not initially intended to be a sequel to the original Honey, I Shrunk the Kids in 89, uh, what, a couple years prior, originally titled Big Baby. It was about a young toddler who grew to a giant size by a freak accident involving growth ray and eventually terrorizing Las Vegas in a nonviolent yet Godzilla-esque way. And he does. Yeah, it's definitely non-violent at all. It's play off of, you know, Disney comedic antics, and it works. Uh, Disney saw the possibilities of making this a follow-up to Honey, I Shrunk the Kids and rewrote the script. Uh, excuse me. Uh, though most characters from Big Baby were actually rewritten as characters from Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, there was no parallel character for Amy Selinsky, Amy O'Neill. Instead of excluding the character, Amy makes a brief appearance in the beginning of the film and is explained that she is leaving for college. That's very true. You see her... For like a split second, and then she's gone. I mean, she still looks like a fox, if you ask me, though. Uh, Alec Alex Daniels portrays Adam in his blown-up form. He is credited as Uncle Yanosh. <laughs> Daniels, <laughs> Daniels wore a 40-pound electronic-headed uh, Adam suit for the role, and he was coached on how to mimic the movements of a toddler. Once suited up on the set, Daniels had to magnify his movements so that they would show through the costume's heavy, clumsy folds. Occasionally, the heat inside the outfit produced uh, excuse me, proved too much for its coolant system. A vest uh, with ice water pumped through tubes, prompting crew members who noticed Daniel's faltering to yell, get Alex out of there. Wow, that's that's a trip, dude. They went through a lot of effort to make this film, and it has poor reviews, whatever. Uh, goofs, the final scene of the punchline of the first film, shrinking the machine in reverse, and the family feasts on a large food. In fact, the reversing effects of the machine is how the kids went from tiny to normal size. In the second film, Wayne is working for a company that is testing a completely different machine that will enlarge things, and the shrink machine is in storage. It's never explained why simply reversing his shrink machine wasn't the answer. Okay, well, I mean, I don't necessarily consider it a goof. I mean, if you analyze it that far, I mean, sure, whatever. Uh, quotes. Uh, this is coming from the mother, Diane. There's one thing every little kid knows. Daddies mean fun. Mommies mean business. Yeah, and that still stands the test of time, I, I would say. Uh, crazy credits. I just found that out because I just finished the film. It says Adam's laugh can be heard after the end credits. And that's, yeah, yeah, very much uh, true there. Uh, released July 17th, 1992. So this film is about to be 31 years old uh, here in about two weeks um, as of this recording. Also known as Big Baby, as I stated, filmed in Wet n Wild Water Park in uh, Las Vegas, Nevada. Production companies, Touchwood, uh, Pacific Partners, Walt Disney Pictures. So, I mean, it's definitely filmed in Las Vegas, but not obviously the entirety of the water park. The water park is just one sequence of this film. Uh, budget was $40 million, but it actually grossed 58.6. So it grossed $18.6 million despite its score. I, I liked it. I thought it was great. I, I don't know why people hate on it. I really loved it. Okay. Uh, and according to Wiki, it says that it's a sequel, but I don't think it's supposed to be as of what IMDb was telling me. In the film, Adam Selinsky, the young addition to the family, is accidentally exposed to Wayne's new industrial-sized growth machine. Yeah, 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 yeah. Franchise continued with a direct home video sequel, a television series, and theme park-related uh, attractions. Yeah, I remember one at Disneyland. It was Honey, I Shrunk the Audience. That was pretty cool. I think they took that out. I don't know what it is now. That was really cool, though. Uh, yeah, I, I definitely enjoyed that as a kid. 
the film was not originally written as a sequel, as I've already kind of stated. Originally titled Big Baby, it was about a toddler who grew to giant, giant. Again, there's your fucking fourth one this episode. Giant size. Thank you. Grew to a giant size by a freak accident involving a growth ray and eventually terrorizing Las Vegas in a nonviolent Godzilla-esque way. I already, I feel like I'm fucking beating a dead horse here. Disney saw the possibilities of making it into a sequel for the first film and they rewrote the script. Main characters from Big Baby became the Selinsky family, but there was no character in the original that Amy Selinsky could replace. So she leaves to college and not seen again. Makes perfect sense. They basically wrote her off. But she got paid nonetheless, right? So prior to this, a sequel development was offered to screenwriter and teacher David Trottier. Production-wise, all right, what do we got here? Uh, Randall uh, Kleiser, director of Grease, was chosen to direct this film, replacing Joe Johnston, who would return with the cast in the 3D show Honey, I Shrunk the Audience, the uh, Joe Johnston. Interesting. Presented at Disney Parks until 2010. I didn't realize it was taken out that long ago. For for some reason, I feel like if I turn around, I'm like, oh, yeah, it was just taken out, you know, 2021. It's been fucking 13 years since it's been gone. Wow, where the hell have I been? Uh, Well... Anyway, <laughs> like the first film, it had animated opening credits, which was also really cool. I liked that aspect of this. Produced in a different art style by Kurtz and Friends. Uh, production began in June 17, 1991. Filming took place in Simi Valley for the parts involving the Selinsky House. Filming locations in LA, or excuse me, Las Vegas, included the Hard Rock Hotel, obviously, as I stated. For those of you who have seen this, I'm sure you have. Uh, I just wanted to go behind the scenes and give you a synopsis about what's what's going on. I wanted to hear about it. Or I wanted to read about it, so therefore you wanted to hear about it, right? Moving on. Scenes involving a water park where Nick worked and where Mandy is first introduced were filmed at Wet n' Wild Las Vegas. We already knew that. While post-production special effects were used heavily throughout the film, some effects were practically shot on set. When Adam knocks down his bedroom door, production designer Leslie Dilly created a set with miniature furniture, cool, about four feet away from the camera. I love that kind of stuff. While the adult actors would be about 15 feet away, giving it a forced perspective. Kleiser recalled Danny was generally better at improvising and fresh uh, reactions. Josh was better at following directions, so we would alternate. Interesting. Uh, home media, VHS LaserDisc, January 6, 1993. So I'm sure that's probably how long I've probably had mine. So yeah, 30 years. Wow. Released on Bare Bones DVD in 2002. The VHS release contained no bonus material besides a music video. I don't remember there being a music video, but sure. The LaserDisc contains an animated short film, Off His Rocker, directed by Barry Cook. The film released on VHS 97 alongside its predecessor to coincide with the release of the third film, Honey, We Shrunk Ourselves, which out of they, – they definitely progressively kind of fall shorter. I'd say Honey, I Shrunk is the best. Honey, I Blew Up the Kid is awesome. I love it in its own right. Honey, We Shrunk Ourselves, definitely not the best, but it does star a very young Mila Kunis, and I will watch that sometime soon, and I will talk about it. Uh, it's been a while since I've watched that one. Receptively – um, it opened at number one ahead of A League of Their Own, the uh, Tom Hanks film of the time, and it opened with an $11 million uh, weekend gross, so good for them. The film ultimately grossed 58.7 according to Wiki, and it grossed $37 million for a worldwide total of $96 million. Wow. Rotten Tomatoes gives it 40% out of 20 critics. I'm not quite sure why. Whatever. Metacritic gives it 50 out of 14 uh, critics, so it, yeah, mixed or average reviews. Uh, giving it a, uh, excuse me, Cinema Score gives it a B plus out of A to F scale. Uh, Roger Ebert reviewing the Chicago Sun-Times criticized the weak story writing there may be, for all I know, comic possibilities in a giant kid, but this movie doesn't find them. I, you know, I mean, you're also an adult watching this film. I mean, you're not like a kid, you know, so whatever. He further concluded that the special effects, on the other hand, are terrific as they were in the first film. The filmmakers are able to combine the giant baby and the real world in shots that seem convincing. And the image of the toddler walking down Glitter Gulch in the state of the art too bad the movie relies on special effects to carry the show. Why? The special effects work, man. It's very. It's not like it's CGI. I, th- I think the C- – not CGI, excuse me. I think the effects for the time 
definitely work, man. This is 30-year-old stuff you're dealing with here. It's not fucking, you know, insert Transformer CGI crap. That's just me, you know. Sorry for those of you of, of my audience that like the Transformer films. I don't. Sorry. I just I don't care for that CGI stuff all that much unless it's done right. Uh, anyway, back to this film. Um, well, I guess that's really all I had on it. They were going to go into the uh, soundtrack, and I don't really feel like going into the soundtrack. Uh, well, let me close out here with uh, Roger Ebert. He further concluded that the special effects on the walking, too bad the movie. Yeah, I already read that. Anyway, I got sidetracked by you know speaking my mind here in regards to CGI. Uh, yeah, CGI just it all depends. Some films do it right, some don't. Uh, but, uh, this one obviously doesn't use CGI, it uses forced perspective and it uses a uh, taller actor as well as the, uh, two twins to portray the, uh, small Adam. So there you have it. There's honey. I blew up the kid. It was awesome. All right, moving on to the next thing. All right. I got some damn to earth coil of the snake going on in the background. And, uh, for some reason this was on my brain and I felt like talking about it and I was able to find something on it. It's the bygone glory of blockbusters. Pokemon Snap Station. I don't know if you guys remember these big blue kiosks in Blockbuster. Obviously blue and yellow, paying homage to, you know, where they're stationed essentially in Blockbuster. But it was an N64 kiosk and you could take pictures of uh, Pokemon. Uh, when you actually had it at home, it didn't send pictures out of the uh, system. But when you would take pictures, it would print these little stickers out and you can put them pretty much anywhere and everywhere. It was a really cool kiosk at the time. Uh, There's actually a new game that just came out. I think it was like two years ago in April, but nothing can replace the magic of this rental stores printed out pocket monsters at the time. It was so cool. It had a yellow controller and you would push a little like red button, I think to uh, essentially play the game and just, I mean, it was just such an iconic, really, it was just a really cool device. Uh, collectors nowadays will happily spend thousands of dollars on a well-preserved Pokemon snap station if they can find one. So let me read up on it and give you some information about it. In 1999, one thing united millions of children across the world. They would do anything to make Pokemon real at the time. For a brief window, the video rental store Blockbuster held that power. And yeah, I remember I had my Pokemon folder and everything. I had cards in there galore. And I was like, oh my God, there's stickers to like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> denote which ones I'm actually like looking at as far as like, you know, because on the cover of it, it was just a blank slate. It was just white and it was clear. And if I put stickers on it, I'm like, okay, now I know what's inside. I'm like, it's all Pokemon. You know, and even they came out in their early polygonal 3D state to these tiny little stickers, probably no bigger than like a quarter or a half dollar. But anyway, it was a year after Nintendo released Pokemon Red and Blue on Game Boy in 1998 from Game Freak, introducing a wild, strange world where kids could befriend and battle the mysterious creatures. So I can't believe in 99, I was 11 years old, that Nintendo took the premise a little further. The N64 console, already being eh, probably about four years or old or so at the time, releasing Pokemon Snap, in which uh, Pokemon wandered the world, or excuse me, wandered the wild, their first 3D incarnation, and players took pictures of them, luring them out with apples. Professor Oak judged the photo's quality by Pokemon rarity and stylistic sophistication. Going on, Pokemon Sar uh, Safari, excuse me, piqued the imagination. Suddenly, Pokemon had their own lives off camera. As a visitor, you could briefly appreciate them in their most authentic, not in captivity. Uh, scrolling through digital Pokemon Snap photos were like browsing a collection of signed baseball uh, cards at the time. And, and yeah, I totally, totally agree. That's probably the best way to view it. Caught after a moment of greatness, they were digital at the time, widely considered less than real collectibles that you could hold. This was the magic of Blockbuster's Pokemon Snap Station. Yeah, they digitized fucking baseball cards and made them stickers. It was awesome. And I loved it. Nintendo teamed up with Blockbuster in the 90s to design a kiosk that fully capitalized on kids' ardent and impossible wish to make Pokemon real. Yeah, 
It was a royal blue arcade cabinet trimmed in electric yellow. What did I stay? Or what did I stay? Excuse me. There it is. Can't fucking speak English. There's your like fifth one of the episode. With a matching yellow N64 controller popping out of the front. Not the yellow banana controller that they had for the Donkey Kong 64. Just a completely separate yellow controller. Because the banana controller had little brown pieces on the end of the controller to uh, mimic a banana, of course. That controller goes for a lot of money now. A happy image of Pikachu sprung from the bottom. A Samsung CRT TV was connected to an N64 hidden inside. Containing a small printer, kids who had Pokemon Snap at home or rented it from Blockbuster could slot in their cartridge and print their digital photographs of Pokemon onto this uh, Pokemon Station sticker sheets. I don't think I knew that, that you could literally bring your own. I just remember going in there and taking pictures and printing out whatever. Yeah, because even at the time, you know, your parents are, you know, siblings or cousins, whoever the hell you're with, friends, you know, they're looking around, you know, for a movie and they only take, what, maybe 20, 30 minutes. So you could really only maybe get through. Well, actually, you could probably beat the game in that amount of time now. But I mean, as a kid, I, I only probably got through like the first two levels or something. So I can only print out stickers from there. But, you know, every time I went in there and it was there, I fucking played it or I made sure it didn't stand in line so I can play it. It was an eye-opening experience to actually take a game home with you and convert it into something real, saying Nintendo Wire, publisher Jason Ganos, 35 at the time. In 99, he was about the same age as Ash Ketch... Actually, no. Oh, never mind. Excuse me. He's 35 now. In 99, he was about the same age as Ash. Excuse me. The protagonist of the Pokemon anime. When he started his Pokemon trainer journey, he begun... Excuse me. He begged his mom and dad to go to the local blockbuster and march over to the front counter where the cashier had boxes of pastel Pokemon-covered smart cards on scale for $3. Uh, they worked like international phone cards loaded up with credits. He'd insert the card into the machine, pop in his N64 cartridge from home, and scroll through his photos. Each printed sheets contained 16 photo stickers. And they were really, really cool. The Pokemon Snap uh, cards themselves, they kind of look like a library card with a Pokemon on it. Of course it does. If you didn't own the game, you could play a short demo of it on the station. That's pretty much what I played, as I stated, printing out photos of some minor Pokemon celebrities. Not very many, as I stated. Basically, just the first level or two. Um, collectors today fall over themselves searching for the station themselves, which Blockbuster abandoned after a couple short years. One in Bellingham, Washington, was being offered for, wow, $12,000. Although collectors say that typically they see them go for about 2000 to 4000 uh, Matthew Gary once dedicated himself to finding a station for a solid six months. He built an application that searched the internet every few minutes for new listings. None emerged and he even gave up. After eight years, the owner of the dilapidated arcade shutting down in Missouri told him that he had a Nintendo thing that had been sitting in his closet for a decade. Uh, Matthew Gary bought the Snap station for $120. Wow, you fucking lucked out, guy. Repairing just to lighten a couple of decorative touches. Good for you, man. Right place at the right time. Pokemon YouTuber who goes by Real Breaking Nate, never heard of him personally, uh, brought, excuse me, bought one off a of Facebook Marketplace in the summer of 2019, what he calls a crazy good deal, $1,400. Yeah, I'd say you, you paid about half of what it goes for, give or take. He drove four hours each way between Indiana and Ohio to pick it up. It came from a closed blockbuster in Philadelphia. That's crazy. Now the Nintendo Switch is getting the new Pokemon Snap as of April in uh, 2021 engineered a way to connect the Pokemon Snap Station to his Switch. Uh, he's trying to work on that. That's a trip. Using a micro SD card, so it's kind of cheating. Yeah, yeah, but whatever. He's curious about how the new, younger generation people brought into the world of Pokemon photography will, appeal, will feel about its appeal and its lost physical component. When his daughter comes into the room where Pokemon Snap Station lives, she gleefully watches the printer move as the sticker comes out. It's world away from the slick pocket printers displayed at Best Buy or Target. Yeah, I, I can agree with that. Today, the ability to physically manifest digital things is a given. Maybe new Pokemon Snap players will be able to print their creations off the Switch's SD cards. Eh, doubt it. But without the pilgrimage to Blockbuster, the alter, 
to Pokemon or the theater of living, what will it be the same? A device like this doesn't belong in modern society, he says. It's a relic from an age that is gone. Nostalgia is a powerful drug, my friend. If we put it into fruition, it can happen, but uh, it probably won't. I'm really not even that big of a Pokemon uh, enthusiast as I used to be. I stopped playing after the 3DS iterations. So I played for a good 10, you know, 15 years and I kind of got over it. Uh, you know, my nephew's all about it, but, uh, you know, and he calls me and texts me, hey, I want to talk about this Pokemon. I'm like, yeah, sure, I'll listen. I'll, you know, indulge you for a minute, but it's just not my thing anymore. But uh, I wanted to talk about this cool kiosk because I just, it was such a sign of the times because I was his age. My eyes were glowing when this thing came out and I, I loved it. You know, he's 10 now. I was 11 when this thing came out. So there you have it. Pokemon kiosk. All right, next thing. Well, <clears throat> I decided to do a little uh, makeshift uh talk about two bands one in particular uh, i'm going to start off with bobot adrenaline i had a mix with them as well as moving units <clears throat> given to me by a friend of mine amy like back shit i was probably 13 14 in junior high days and it only had maybe 10 11 tracks on it so it was probably split relatively evenly with these two bands i want to say i think the other band moving units i think she, she was like cousins of one of the uh members of the band and that CD has stuck with me for years. I still have it. I love it. I mean, Bobot Adrenaline and uh, Moving Units are both on Spotify. Uh, I actually bought a couple Bobot Adrenaline uh, albums. And uh, I don't think I own anything Moving Units, but I love the Moving Units. It's like that. It's almost because Bobot Adrenaline's like, it's like a, it's a different kind of like punk. It's a Southern California, like, yeah, it's like rock. I don't know how to describe it. It's like alternative punk. It's different. And then Moving Units is much more like, uh, kind of like math rocky jazz, like funk pop. It's it's super cool. I absolutely love it. But I'm going to be talking about Bobot right now. Formed in 2001 as an American LA-based political rock band with punk aggressions featuring Pepper Berry from the now defunct Buck the Band. Uh, after five songs released on several Gaikido Comet record compilations, one being This Just In and Benefit for Indie Media, the band went into the studio and recorded the debut EP Unfurled in 2007. It was produced by Tommy Stinson. Unfurled released August 27th, 2008 on CD Baby is what it's called, apparently. In 2009, the band signed with Southern California punk record label Basement Records in order to release their second album, Dumb Bomb. That's the one that I have. It has a bunch of bombs on the front. Pretty cool. In 2010. Members Pepper Berry, vocals, guitar, Corey Mack on bass, and Brian Penzeri on drums. That's it. Former members Debo being drums and Mike Watson on drums. Discography, uh, Six Steps to a Better You. I definitely remember that one. And I remember Dumb Bomb in 2010, and that's it. Another media, their anti-death penalty anthem, Penalty Box, featured in Tony Hawk's American Wasteland. I definitely remember that being on there. They also had a song on, I want to say, SSX on tour, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, featured on a 2010 release of Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 2 for the iPhone, apparently, was also on there. Wasted Youth, a different song. I would never want to play a fucking skateboarding game on my phone like that. Hell no, that's just so dumb. All right, that's not really much on Bobot, so let's move on to Moving Units. Uh, same thing, I don't think I have very much on them either. Uh, historically, the band was formed in 2001, same year, by Blake Miller, formerly of Spectacle, Johan Bogley, and Chris Hothwell. Uh, after Miller invited Bogley and Hothwell to jam songs from an early demo he self-produced, they released their debut EP, Moving Units, on 3-1-G in early 2002. Their touring experience includes opening slots for Hot Hot Heat, Heard of Them, Pixies of Classic from the 80s, Blur from the 90s, Nine Inch Nails from the 80s and the 90s, Trent Reznor kicks ass. Their debut full-length album, Dangerous Dreams, love that album, was released on October 12, 2004 by Palm Pictures. It's very like seductive and sensual and sexual and like murderous. It's like, 
It's like if Depeche Mode decided to do like a like a jazz pop punky math rock band. It's it's awesome. I love it. Uh, moving units released their second studio album, Hexes for Hexes, in 2007. Also love that one as well on Metropolis Records. Their first single, Pink Thoughts, released uh, through the band's MySpace page at the time, and no longer, you know, rest in peace. Uh, so Sweet released a uh, one-off limited edition 7-inch vinyl, Crash and Burn Victims, in the UK, coupled with a remix of the same track by the Felix Cartal in November 2007. The band released an EP titled Tension War on February 14, 2011. Moving Units chose to self-release the new EP in conjunction with their management firm, Post Modern. Moving Units also played at Coachella in 2011. I don't think I knew that, in support of their latest release. In 2012, they announced their Facebook page that Blake Miller had left the band by mutual decision. Didn't know that either. In late 2012, Blake Miller had performed uh, shows with the band name Moving Units without approval of the other members. Wow, causing a mild dispute. Now, I don't blame him for being pissed. The issue being resolved later, the original band members reached an agreement where Miller was given permission to use the band's name, Moving Units, with new members and continue the project under the same moniker. That's a trip. So, uh, Albums, Dangerous Dreams, 2004, Hexes for Hexes. Uh, I don't know if I have any other ones that I know of. I think I know of Neurotic Erotic. I just love that name, too. It's such a trip. Uh, their singles being uh, available, 2003, and uh, Crash and Burn. I mean, I... Pfft. They have X and Y, uh, Melodrama, I mean, Between Us and Them, uh, you know, dude, they have such great songs, but uh, there you have it, just a little excerpt on two bands, I didn't think I'd be able to find too much, I mean, nobody really talks about these guys anyway, but I decided that I would, so get out there and listen to Bobot Adrenaline, like Robot, with a B, and Moving Units, there you have it. And you know what, <sighs> for some reason I was in the mood about talking some uh, chocolate toffee bars and I got two of them for you. I'm going to start out with a Heath Bar as I still continue to listen to the compilation of Weedian. It is playing Utah Cryogenics album actually now. And the compilation of Weedian is just uh, the psychedelic desert rock metal. Oh, I love this stuff. I know I've only overset it oh, about a hundred thousand fucking times now, right? But uh, here we go. I'm going to be talking Heath Bar made from toffee almonds and milk chocolate manufactured by the uh, Heath Brothers Confectionery in 1928. So it's almost about to reach its centennial. Since its acquisition in North America confectionery operations of late 1996, the Heath Bar has been manufactured and distributed by Hershey. So it was picked up since then. So it's almost about to hit its 30th here in, what, three years as far as a Hershey-owned company. Historically, 1913 school teacher L.S. Heath bought a confectionery shop in Robinson, Illinois, a likely business opportunity for his oldest sons, Bayard Heath and Everett Heath. In 1914, the brothers opened a combined candy store, ice cream parlor, and manufacturing operation there. In 31, Bayard and Everett Heath persuaded their father to sell the confectionery and work at his dairy. They brought their candy market, or excuse me, making equipment with them and established a retail business there. The Heaths came up with a marketing idea of including their toffee confection of dairy products ordered from Taken. Uh, excuse me, order form taken around by Heath Dairy Trucks. Customers could then order Heath bars to be delivered among, along with milk and cottage cheese. That's smart. A uh, little door-to-door delivery chocolate. I mean, pff, I would love that. But then again, if you call Uber or fuck, not call them, text them, you know, or go on, uh, you know, 7-Eleven.com and you're like, I want a dollar Heath bar. It's going to be like $10 by the time it fucking gets to your house. So dumb. You might as well just walk your fat ass to 7-Eleven and pick up your own Heath bar for a fucking dollar. And then maybe lose weight, walk in there, and just to only gain the weight, and then walk back after you're done eating it, right? Much better idea. Anyway, <laughs> in 1940, family members invested in one of the few available oil leases in uh, Newton, Illinois, that had been overlooked by major oil companies. In July of 1940, the lease struck oil, eventually pumping 2,700 barrels per day and over $1 million to the family. So they were definitely well off. The popularity of Heath Bar grew after the war. 
i.e. being the Civil War, not the Civil, yeah, the fucking Civil War, I'm an idiot, that only happened, what, fucking 100 years prior, I'm talking about World War II, I'm an idiot, wow, in 1946, Ellis Heath and his four sons, two daughters and grandchildren, incorporated Ellis Heath and Sons Incorporated, manufacturing process remained largely a hands-on, family-run operation, all four of Ellis Heath's sons, his two daughters, and several grandchildren were involved in the business. In the 50s, the Heath Toffee Ice Cream Bar was developed and was eventually franchised to other dairies. By 1955, the operation had grown to produce about 69,000 candy bar centers at one time. That's insane. Well, I mean, they had money due to the oil strike, so good for them. The automatic wrapping machines turned out 1,600 candy bars per minute. That's a lot, even for that time. The company had 35 candy salesmen who called on approximately 7,200 wholesale distributors in the U.S., along with thousands of other outlets such as theaters, vending machine operators, and supermarkets. Yeah, they probably made a lot of their money as well as uh, in theaters too because, yeah, going to the movies and getting a Heath bar sounds like a good time. Uh, in the 1960s, the huge national success of the Heath bar led to disagreements with the family with at least one grandchild expelled from the business in 69, Richard J. Heath. He eventually published a book in 1995 entitled Bittersweet, The Story of the Heath Candy Company. That might be kind of interesting to read. I'd be down for that. In the 70s, the company bought the registered trademark toffee ice cream flavoring formula called Butter Brickle from the Fenn Brothers, uh, the ice cream and candy company of Sioux Falls, South Dakota. In January of 86, L.S. Heath & Sons filed a trademark application for the Heath name with a first use of declaration of March 1st, 1931. That was the year that Bayard and Everett Heath sold the confectionery business and began working in their father's dairy operation. The registered trademark number... Uh, was granted August 5th, 1986. Wow. Uh, It took a little while for them to get that uh, grant, but okay. In 89, uh, the business was sold to Leaf Incorporated, which itself had been purchased uh, by a Finland company in 1983. In 1996, the North American Confectionery Company purchased by Hershey as a transaction that totaled $330 million. Well, it's Hershey, man. They've been around already fucking almost 100 years at that time, if not already 100 years. Uh, they bought the confectionery operations, including such brands as Heath, Jolly Rancher, Milk Duds, Payday Whoppers, Chuckles, and Twizzlers. Uh, you definitely hear a lot more about the others rather than Chuckles. Uh, I see Whoppers, Milk Duds, Payday, Jolly Rancher all the time, and Twizzlers everywhere. So, I mean, they're they're definitely well off. They're doing fine. For $440 million is what they paid. Plus annual royalties for brand licenses paid to the uh, Finland-based company bought from Hershey, the European confectionery operations of German Praline manufacturer, uh, an, Itali- an Italian confectioner for a total of $110 million. Wow. Wow. Hers- Hershey had previously created the Score Bar in 1981 to compete with the Heath Bar before buying out Leaf. It currently uh, maintains production and marketing of both Heath and the Score Bar, despite the two being almost identical. I will get into that momentarily because that is what I'm going to be talking about next is the Score Bar. I fucking love the Score I mean, I like the Heath Bar, too. I think I'm more of a Score Bar fan, personally. Though. I just love how thin it is. It's not two pieces. I mean, usually I'll get into that in a minute. Product. Uh, shaped as a thin, hard slab, milk chocolate coating with toffee. Yeah, we already know that. Uh, health bars and other products. Following 1973, use of the candy as an ice cream mix-in. Heath Bars became a significant ingredient in ice creams and other confections. Of course they did. Although the candy bar's original manufacturer subsequently Hershey have supported the incorporation of the candy bar into other confections as a pre-shredded variety, many vendors hand-crumble the candy bars, finding the pre-crumbled variety to be too small and too dusty. Agreed. Yeah, it is very much so like a, a dust problem. Anyway, I'm going to be talking about the score bar now. Uh, what's funny about Heath bars, it always reminds me of my dad too. Like he always... He like will take pictures of like Heath bars and he'll send it to me and he'll be like, this is a good health bar. And I'm like, dad, it's Heath. He's like, no, it's healthy for you. Just being a smart ass. It's fucking funny. 
Uh, score, a chocolate toffee produced by the same brand, Hershey Company. I had no idea it was a competitor. It was first marketed in the U.S. in 81 and in Canada in 83, two years later. The score bar consists of a thin slab butter toffee covered in a milk chocolate coating. Score is available as a single or king size. Love the king size. Well, I mean, single is great, though, too. It's it's a lot thinner than uh, the English, or excuse me, the uh, Heath bar. So, I mean, you feel like you're getting less, but it's very much so more fulfilling with its, uh, I feel like toffee and enough chocolate compared to a, uh, Heath bar. I feel like it's almost too much. Um, the score bar, it was originally, as I stated, created to compete with, which was produced by Heath company at the time, but acquired by leaf candy company and sold to Hershey in 1996. So score bar already was, you know, working for Hershey long before, uh, Heath. That's pretty cool for about 15 years, uh, unless you go Canada, then what? 13 years. Hershey now markets both of these competitors. Score bar is very similar, but with minor differences, such as the score bar being slightly thinner. There you have it. Talk six films and uh, what I'm playing currently, uh, that being Crash 3, Warped on PS1. I'm having a good time with that. Um, yeah, I just felt like talking some chocolate and I felt like talking about the Pokemon Snap kiosk because I was like, I don't really feel like too many people talk about it much or it doesn't really get, you know, spoken about much anymore. Then again, it was a sign of the times, you know came out what 20 was that four years ago now crazy but uh yeah man i'm more of a score bar fan personally compared to heath and all six of these films i had a relatively good time with you know i, I don't really hate on any of them so there you have it as always thank you for the love and support everybody thank you for sticking around thank you